Welcome to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, tonight featuring Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I bid you all good evening, good morning as the case may be, and welcome to another edition of Who Knows What. That's live talk radio all night long from the Tahitian and Hawaiian Islands in the west, east to the Caribbean and the U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, North to the Pole and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. Great to be here again this morning. Great to be back in general. And we've got what's going to be a very interesting program this evening because I've got a lot of questions, and I'm sure you do too. You all know uh, that while I was gone on vacation, as occurs when I'm gone on vacation, because that's the way it is, I have no other answer. Big things break. NASA suddenly announced that, lo and behold, they have a meteorite uh, recovered, which they thought contained the uh, contained life, uh, fossilized uh, samples of life from the planet Mars. And that was followed up, uh, or on the heels of that, we got other news about Europa and the possibility of a watery center to Europa, and that there might be life there, too. Non-trivial revelations, indeed. And I have many questions, and I'm sure you do, and we've got a man this morning who may be able to answer some of them, some of them Dr. Harold Levison. He is a senior research fellow, uh, Department of Space Sciences, Instrumentation in Space Research Division and uh, works for the Southwest Research Institute. He has an A.B. in Physics, Franklin and Marshall College in 81, M.S. in Astronomy, University of Michigan, 83, and a Ph.D. in Astronomy, University of Michigan, 1986. His principal research interest lies in the area of the dynamics of astronomical objects. In particular, he focuses on the long-term behavior of the solar system and its bodies, though he has undertaken both observational and theoretical projects in the pursuit of these interests. Most of his research involves the development of large-scale numerical experiments. So if he talks, if he researches the dynamics of astronomical bodies and objects, He'd be a perfect person to ask how a meteorite gets from there, Mars, to here, the third rock from the sun. His work on the solar system includes studies of the long-term dynamic behavior of comets, the dynamics of objects in the Kuiper Belt, I believe it is, the stability of Trojan asteroids, and the origins of Pluto. He has recently performed a numerical integration of the orbits of thousands of the belt objects for the entire age of the solar system, about 4 billion years. In addition, he has performed the largest CCD search to date for slow-moving objects in our solar system. He is also a member of the team that used the Hubble Space Telescope to find objects the size of Halley's Comet in the belt four billion miles from the sun. And he has a um, 
a professional chronology as long as your arm. He's a member of the American Astronomical Society, Division of Planetary Science, and Division of Dynamic Astronomy. So we have a heavyweight on our hands here. And in a moment, we will ask him about all the recent revelations. Now we take you back to the night of August 21st, 1996, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. It also, by the way, is uh, fortunate we have the doctor here this morning because the following just cleared the uh, wire. Scientists later this year will head back to the Antarctic, the ice fields, where the famed Martian meteorite was found in the hopes of finding up to 1,000 more. Ralph Harvey, who will lead the search funded by the National Science Foundation, has disputed NASA's claim that the meteorite known as ALH-84001 indicated possible Martian life. But, he says, more study of the rock and others is needed. He says it's just a coincidence that his team is going back to the same area where the fame, famed uh, meteorite was found. He says the trip was planned a long time ago. Almost sounds like an announcement from the White House. Every time they get ready to do something, well, we have this scheduled for the last year and a half. At any rate, let's go to uh, Colorado, I think Boulder, Colorado, and here is Dr. Harold F. Levison. Uh, Dr. Levison, are you there? Good morning. Well, good morning. First of all, thank you for coming on the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. I was out of the country in Europe and Scandinavia when all of this news broke. Never fails. I go on vacation, something big happens. And so the big news that, that broke that I got um, on the ship, here I was in the middle of the ocean, and suddenly the lead story is life on Mars. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I, I hardly know where to start, except do you recall the essence of the news release, uh, the way it first was released? Uh, yes, I actually uh, came home um, the day of the news, the press conference and spent two hours sitting in front of my TV watching the press conference and trying to understand exactly what these guys were claiming. The actual article didn't come out until this week. And I actually only read it this morning. I see. Um, so it was a two-hour press conference. Did, did you sit there watching all that with your jaw hanging open? Were you surprised? I was surprised. I, um, also, was, I also had a great deal of skepticism, and I still do. Uh -huh. As a matter of fact, I think the scientists involved also are skeptical. I don't think anybody is really claiming that they found proof that life once existed on Mars. What they're saying is, is there's a line of evidence for different points in their argument, actually, mm -hmm. which uh, leads them to conclude that the simplest explanation, if you call this simple, is that life on Mars um, created what we see. All right, uh, let's try it from this point of view. If you had been the lead scientist, team leader, uh, who was looking into all of this, mm -hmm. uh, with the evidence they had, would you have gone public at that time? I think so. I think so. They were very clever. 
um, in what they did, and they were also very very careful. They wrote a paper, and they submitted it to one of the leading scientific publications in the world, Science Magazine. They had it refereed um, by their peers. They got comments back, and it wasn't until the paper was actually accepted for publication that they held the news conference. I think that's sort of rare in, in science when a big news breaks. The people that usually hear about it first are the media. Sure. In this case, they were very, very careful and didn't tell the media until after they had the paper accepted for publication. So they had peer review. That's right. All right. Um, now, I must point out, that's only two referees in the whole world. The rest of the community, I think, is fairly skeptical, although excited. All right. Had you been a referee, I take it you would have uh, would have agreed. Um, go ahead and go public. Um. Maybe, maybe. Uh-huh. Uh, you have to realize that the lines of evidence that they use come from very different fields in the astronomical community. The astronomical community is not this um, big um, monolith type thing where everybody, all astronomers, have the same expertise in various areas. Um, this particular work required people who were experts on fossils on Earth, uh-huh. um, geologists, something about uh, atmospheric science, all that needed to be wrapped together in order to produce what they produced. I'm an astronomer, so I only know something about one area of this whole piece of work. And as you said, that's the actual dynamics or the uh, orbital evolution of the rock once it left Mars to the point where it hit Earth. All right. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, what? Where, when was this found, this meteorite? Um, I believe it was found in 1984. 84. So, in other words, 12 years ago. That's right. Uh, that's a long time. Uh, any any idea why they just now are concluding that, gee, uh, it's from Mars, and gee, it shows that there was life there perhaps millions or billions of years ago, whatever? Well, really what happened is a lot of pieces of evidence came together. The idea that this particular rock came from Mars is actually quite old. Uh, people have understood that about this particular rock uh, for many, many years. Um, this research team, the other aspect of this problem is that it's a technological break, breakthrough that allowed them to oh. actually measure what they uh, were trying to measure. All right. What is the scientific basis for concluding that it came from Mars? Um, it has to do with the chemical makeup of the rock. Each planet we have found, that we visited at least, has its own unique fingerprint, chemical fring- fingerprint. Okay. And when you study this rock and the other rocks like it, this is not the only known Martian meteorite. All right, they all have the signature that's identical to Mars, and it's not consistent with it coming from Earth. That distinctive. It is so distinctively different from something that would be from Earth. That's right. Okay. Um, how many uh, samples do we have um, that from different planets? Do we have just uh, Mars, or do we have Mars, and I know we've been to the moon, or okay. do, we ha- do we have to have physical samples to, uh, to get these signatures, or can it be done with satellites? Or Well, we have to go and actually sniff the atmosphere and dig into the rocks. So the only places we really have this information for are the, the Earth, the Moon, and Mars. And Mars, right. Um, the next obvious question is um, how something gets from Mars 
to the earth. I, I, I talked to a scientist the other day, uh, and it, it, obviously it has to be blasted from the surface of Mars, which means there must be some sort of impact on Mars. That's right. And this rock shows evidence of having such an impact, by the way. Oh, it does? Yes, there are fractures to it that indicate that it was probably involved in, the, in an impact. Okay. Um, the, the scientist I talked to the other day, and you can confirm or take issue with this, said, I, I said, look, wouldn't it have to be something about the size of the KT event, that which wiped out the dinosaurs here on Earth? And he said, no, more like MT. Um would you would you take issue? In other words, a gigantic uh, explosion of some sort. Absolutely. Well, the the KT event is the uh, an impact that occurred um, 26 million years ago for the um, that that pretty much changed the the atmospheric dynamics of the Earth. It made it a lot colder, and we believe that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. uh, this impact uh, would have to probably be a lot larger than that. That's right. Did the KT event that occurred on Earth throw things out of Earth orbit or even into Earth orbit? Would it have done that or uh, simply been something that screwed up the atmosphere? It turns out that our studies show that it's a lot easier to get stuff from Mars to the Earth than it is to get things from the Earth to the Mars. Lesser and gravity? or Less gravity and also a thicker atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's interesting. One of the... One of the questions I had when I saw all this stuff was that the life that they seem to be finding on Mars, that this is indeed what they're doing, is very similar to the life that we find on Earth. That's how they're making all their arguments, and I thought that was a little odd. But I thought about it a little bit, and it could be that what we're seeing is not an independent, it's not independent life, that maybe Mars and Earth were swapping spit, as a friend of mine put it, um, over, over, um, the entire history when life was forming. And it could be that these two instances of finding life, if indeed Mars does have life, is not an independent occurrence. Huh. If that's the case, huh. and this is, all, this is all really idle speculation, okay, but if that's the case, our study shows that it's a lot easier to get stuff from Mars to the Earth than the other way around, then maybe the place that life actually formed was on Mars. And we're all Martians. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, it piece is. of speculation. It is indeed, and it validates the research of a lot of people like Graham Hancock and others. Uh, or are you talking at a, uh, about a microbial? Oh, I'm talking about entirely a microbial level. level. Uh huh. Okay. Right. I mean, the way that life got from one planet to another, probably in the form of little bacterial-like spores. Right. If if indeed this did occur. Um, what about uh, what about asteroids and comets? Could they be the spit swappers for uh, a larger larger areas than say uh, Mars and Earth? Well, asteroids and comets, particularly comets, probably came from regions where life didn't have a chance to form. They both contain a lot of organic material, actually very similar to the organic material found in the Martian meteorite, but they probably formed in a, an environment that was just too cold for life to form, and it probably, because it wasn't on the surface of a planet and didn't have a thick atmosphere, there probably wasn't liquid water, water where the asteroids and comets formed. And so the likelihood of asteroids or comets having anything, um, uh, that any kind of life at all, is quite small. And indeed, most of the meteorites that we know about 
come from the asteroid belt mm-hmm. and are chunks of asteroids. And they show absolutely no sign of having life on them. Okay. Matter of fact, that's one of the tests that these guys ran when they, when they were looking at the Martian meteorite. They took meteorites that are believed to come from the asteroid belt and ran similar tests, and they were all negative. As a control? Yes. Good. Um, how long ago um, do you feature this little chunk of Mars was blown from Mars uh, toward us? Um, it was on the order of millions of years ago. I think the, the, the number that was quoted was something around 13 million years ago. But only a couple of tens of thousands of years ago did it actually hit the Earth. It spent a long period of time floating between the planets. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that? What then can we speculate with regard those millions of years ago to conditions on Mars versus what they are today? Uh, again, this is not my expertise, right? Understood. But, okay. But uh, it's my understanding that there's been a lot of discussion in the literature recently that suggested that Mars had a much warmer environment in the distant past. Right? There's clearly signs of running water, that there was running water on Mars, mm-hmm. and there's now um, a lot of evidence in the atmosphere due to the chemical makeup of the atmosphere that's leading people to conclude that the atmosphere was much thicker. But that was billions of years ago, not tens of millions of years ago. Probably all, tens of millions of years ago, the environment on Mars probably wasn't very much different than the environment that we see there today. Right? Mars lost most of its atmosphere because of its, its low mass, and that didn't take a very long time. We got back, and my space history here, I guess, is weak, but we did get back samples gathered on Mars, didn't we? No, we did not. We did not. No. So like, then... The only spacecraft that ever landed on Mars... Um, oh, that's right. Analyzed and then radioed back. That's right. Uh-huh. And, uh, again, that's the basis for concluding that this meteorite came from Mars, the comparison of that data to what they discovered in this meteorite. Yes, but let me point out that that data indicated that there wasn't life on Mars, right? Or at least, well, there's some controversy there. But what was really striking about the information that Viking found was that there was no organic material on the surface of Mars. That's what I recall, yes. And so they're finding organic material in this rock. If um, our um, Mars lander uh, had analyzed this rock, would it have found what our scientists now claim they found in this meteorite? Well, I mean, there are two answers to that. The first answer to that is it couldn't analyze this rock. It could only analyze dirt. And so that's one of the fundamental um, issues about what Voyager, I mean, excuse me, what Viking found. Uh-huh. First of all, Viking, because it was the first spacecraft ever to land on another planet, they were very careful, and they chose the safest place for it to land, not necessarily the scientifically most interesting place for it to land. Uh-huh. So it's like sending us a, what now technologically is a very primitive spacecraft. After all, it landed 10 years ago. Uh, excuse me, 20 years ago, um, that landing a, a very relatively primitive spacecraft in Antarctica, right, on an ice sheet, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what the environment of Earth is like. So it's not a very good measure, I think, of where the, of the more interesting places on Mars, the river valleys and the low points where we see, uh, t- uh, sometimes we see fogs in the photographs indicating that there may be some um, some kind of condensation of water. 
And so uh, that's really where we need to go study. And so far that hasn't been done. Why the Antarctic? Uh, they're talking now, uh, I read you the story from Reuters here that's clearing this hour, and they're talking about going back to the Antarctic where they expect or hope to find up to a thousand more meteorites from Mars. And why the Antarctic? Uh, why not uh, North Dakota <laughs> or anywhere else? It's easier to find these rocks in Antarctica. After all, if you, a rock, if, I don't know if you've seen a picture of this thing, but it looks like a rock, right? Rock is so a rock. So you walk right. out on a field in the middle of South Dakota, and it's going to look like any other rock. But what's going on in Antarctica is these things landed on ice got embedded in the ice, and as the ice is melting, they come to the surface. So I've got you. Any rocks sort of look, if you see a rock there, it's probably a meteorite. Uh-huh. Very, okay. very interesting. So that makes it easier to find these rocks. So it's not uh, that these meteorites are particularly tra uh, attracted to the Antarctic. It's just that it's a good field of dreams in which to search. All right, Absolutely. Doctor, hold on. We'll be right back to you. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. On Premier Radio Networks, tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. Somewhere in time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. We're talking about the Mars story. The Mars meteorite. Are we all Martians? We might be. My guest is uh, Dr. Harold F. Levison, Senior Research Fellow, uh, Department of Space Sciences. Uh, for the Southwest Research Institute. We'll ask him a little bit about the Southwest Research Institute in a moment and get back to him in a moment. Now we take you back to the night of August 21st, 1996 on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Now, back to uh, uh, Dr. Levison. Doctor, are you there? I am. Good. Um, all right. Let's approach it this way. Somebody just sent me a fax from a place called South Lyon, Michigan, and says this rock is much more likely from Earth. says, come on, Art, a rock from Mars 50 million years ago. Um, isn't it more likely that it came from Earth? How about Hudson Bay, Guatemala, after an asteroid hit? This whole topic is not observable, so it is not science, but religious faith. 
signed Ron in uh, in Michigan. So it sounds to me like perhaps a religious objection, very thinly veiled. Uh, but he's saying it is, uh, on the part of science, a kind of a religious uh, faith, Doctor. How would you respond to that? Not well, science. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know what that means. It, it seems to me that um, this this isotropic, uh, isotopic dating or fingerprinting that we've done on this rock is very, very convincing to me. Okay. I was, for a long time, very skeptical. The, the early work done on this, on this subject, uh, worked 20 years ago, argued that you couldn't get the rocks off the planets in order to get them to uh, move between the planets. Right. And that all the asteroids we'd, or all the meteorites we'd be finding would all be from the asteroid belt, which is this rubble pile of uh, rocks that exist between Mars and Jupiter. Right. Um, but I think that the this fingerprinting that they've been able to do on these rocks is very convincing. Um, the the these isotropic ratios are 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 exactly what we see on Mars, hmm. and um, so I don't see really any scientific conclusion other than it came from Mars. All There's right. one exception to that. It's an interesting story. Okay. Okay. The the place where it doesn't match what normally we see on Mars is in carbon, and this was noticed. Um, a, a couple of years ago by a group at the University of Arizona, that this rock looked like every other Martian meteorite except for the carbon. And uh, they were sort of scratching their head about that, but they actually pointed out that the way you could change the carbon fingerprint is by life. It's by life. So life can change that ratio. All right. Um, if so we... this idea has been around for a while. It's oh. just not, I mean, it's never really was put forth in such a coherent way as they've done in this paper, in the science paper. But there were sort of inklings that date back a couple of years that this rock may be special. Okay. Um, what is to say that uh, life at a higher form than microbial, all those millions, is it millions of years ago? Um, millions of years ago that the life existed or that the rock got knocked off of Mars? That the microbial life existed. It's billions of years ago. Then. Billions of years. Billions of All right, years. so then that was during a time when, when you uh, admitted a little while ago the, uh, the atmosphere on Mars and the makeup might have been very, very different. What's to say... That's the current thinking anyway. Okay. Uh, what would argue against even a higher life form having evolved... Um, from this microbial point? Uh, depends on what you mean by higher form. Um, if you mean people, I think the evidence is that we just don't see any evidence of it on the surface of Mars um, through our photographs. Uh -huh. uh, something like worms, I don't think there is any evidence one way or another. If life, all life on Earth right now mm -hmm. uh, were to be extinguished and billions of years were to pass, um, and you were to look at Earth from space, would you know that man had been here? No, I don't think so. Then why but would... The fundamental difference between the Earth and Mars is what would cover up um, uh, the signs of life on Earth is the tectonic activity. Yes. Volcanic eruptions. Yes. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't exist on Mars today. 
However, um, if we look at your earlier model of Mars, the one you talked about earlier, um, there must have been some sort of catastrophic, either short-term or long-term change in the atmosphere and the situation on Mars mm -hmm. to make it what it is today. Yes, but the surface of Mars is a lot older than the surface of Earth. And we can date surfaces in the solar system by counting craters. Uh -huh. If you look at the moon, for example, there are two types of terrain you can see on the moon. Right? There is the highlands, which have been pulverized by meteorites, and there are these craters all over the place, and they're overlapping, and that argues that the highlands on the, on the moon are very old. Matter of fact, probably dating back to the formation of the solar system four and a half billion years ago. Right, the seas on the moon, the dark areas, don't have a lot of craters on them. That argues that, that it's relatively young. Okay. The Earth has very, very, very few craters, a handful. Um, if you look at Mars, there's quite a few craters, indicating that the surface of Mars actually probably dates back a very long time, probably billions of years. So it's much easier to hide things on the Earth than it will be on Mars. Do we know anything about how long it might take for microbial life to become early primitive life? I don't know, polywog, something that would crawl from the, the oceans that were once there. Well, you're asking, I'm certainly not an expert on that. Right. right? That's, you have to ask a biologist, really, what happened on Earth. My recollection from college biology, this is going back a, a, a bit, is that it took billions of years on Earth for single-celled organisms to evolve to multiple-cell organisms. It was a very hard step for life to take. Mm -hmm. uh, yet there were some fast steps uh, also in evolution, were there? Uh, some uh, steps that to this day really cannot be fully accounted for. Uh, the leap between the very simpler life forms, uh, yes, past microbial, to uh, to human beings. Nobody still quite understands that particular leap, do they? Uh, well, we understand, again, this is not my expertise, but my understanding is that we understand bits and parts of it, and the whole story isn't told. But then again, the study of this, this field is, you know, less than a century old, right? Mm -hmm. So people haven't been thinking about it, and the, it, the evidence is buried and, and, uh, under rocks, and we can only really start gleaming what happens when areas are eroding away and we find these fossils. It's a very hard problem. I have no doubt that in the, you know, the centuries or years to come, um, we will be able to put the pieces together. So it is possible this meteorite, uh, or ones like it, seeded uh, microbial life on Earth that has, over this, these billions of years, resulted in us. Uh, it's speculation, but I, could, I, I think it's possible, right? We, there are a lot of questions that need to be answered if you want to try to believe that, right? Can um, a microbe uh, survive an impact that would throw the rock into space? Can it survive um, millions of years in cold storage, essentially, floating between the planets? Can it survive the impact of the rock back onto the Earth? All these questions need to be answered. But, so this is very, very speculative, this idea, but it's certainly possible. All right. Let me, just say, let me just say I don't know anything yet that makes it impossible. Okay. Um, does the uh, finding of life on Mars make life throughout 
the, uh, the solar system, the whole cosmos, much more likely? I mean, here we've got uh, Earth uh, teeming with life and Mars, which apparently once had life, and these are but the two planets that we've had a look-see at. So doesn't that make life ever more likely? It depends. Right? It depends on whether life formed on Earth and Mars independently of one another. If it formed independently of one another, then I think that's very strong evidence that anywhere life can form, it will. And that the universe is probably teeming with life, at least on some level. All right, but remember, we've been discussing this whole fascinating idea that life on Mars and Earth didn't form independently of one another. And if that's the case, then that the fact that we find life on Mars, if we do, is doesn't really tell us anything about how common life is in uh, the universe. Right. So right now, it's a tricky question. So we're going to have to go to many more places before we can begin to answer that question. Or or study what we see a little bit better. Remember, I asked you all these, when you asked me about this idea of things moving back and forth, I, I listed all these questions we would have to answer before I would call it a, a viable scientific theory, all right? And uh, if any one of those questions ends up being no, that, a, you know, a microbe could not have survived the impact that threw the rock into space or survived, you know, in transit, then I think we have, strong evidence that life evolved on each planet independently. Again, are, are, we, are we able, uh, Doctor, to take microbial life in any form into space uh, with the shuttle uh, and or otherwise, and does it survive even limited times in, in the vacuum of in the cold of space? You no, know, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if the experiments have ever been done. What, should it be? Um... I would have to look at the details of what they were planning to do, um, and I would have to know a lot more about where you find life on Earth and, uh, and, and whether it can be stored effectively, let's say, deep inside rocks or, mm -hmm. or um, so that it would be safe from the hostile environment of space. All right. Space well, is incredibly hostile. Right? Yeah. UV, UV radiation, gamma rays, it's a mess. So you really have to ask the question of whether things could survive. All right. My next question is, where in this rock did they find it? Because an obvious, um, an obvious question is, when this rock uh, slammed into Earth, uh, could it not have acquired this fossilized uh, uh, life from, from Earth, from the crash into Earth? Well, um, the authors of this paper think not. And rather than going through arguments of why that couldn't happen, I think the simplest explanation is, again, they had these control samples, these meteorites that came from the asteroid belt. Right. And none of them showed anything similar to what we see in this rock. Even though they crashed into Earth. That's also. right. In a very similar way, in a very similar place <laughs> to uh, this particular rock. Oh, that's fascinating. Right. And matter uh, of fact, they, they studied... Asteroids of many different ages, in order to make sure they're not that there's something special about this particular rock when it landed. And all the rocks of all the ages that they studied all were negative. If they go back to the Antarctic, would you expect they would be able to find uh, many, many more rocks that were from Mars? I think that's that's likely. We haven't, you know, we we there haven't been that many expeditions down there, um, and. 
So there's undoubtedly more sitting on the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it was it had to be a pretty big bang. Uh, I think we agree uh, mm-hmm. on Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, the dinosaurs were extinguished uh, with we think the KT event. How likely is it that something will hit Earth and and more or less erase all of our um, uh, progress today? <laughs> Um, the answer to that is that probably something on that level hits the Earth once every tens of millions of years or so. Mm-hmm. All right. And so the issue you have to ask yourself is whether it's worth worrying about that. Right. I, you know, that's a whole, that's a political issue, not a scientific issue. But undoubtedly, um, an impact will happen on the Earth that will cause uh, global changes in the environment sometime in the future. I think that it has to happen. But the timescales are so long compared to even the history of the human race that I don't know if it's worth worrying about or not. Except that we might be nothing more than the future seeds for life elsewhere in the cosmos. I mean, you've got to pick a daisy and you can go... And it just scatters and uh, creates new daisies, and I wonder if that's not what uh, eventually occurs in nearly all life everywhere. It uh, it flourishes, and then uh, something bangs into it, virtually extinguishing life, but uh, seeding life elsewhere. Uh, is, is that possibly the process that goes on? Um, that, again, is really speculative, and uh, there are... I know people who have argued that that may actually be the case. Um, it's very hard for me to believe that that these rocks could get out of our solar system very easily and then actually find another solar system and hit another planet. Mm-hmm. I find that very, very hard to believe. The probability of that happening, I would say, is quite small. Not zero, it's quite small, and no one's really done the calculation. There will be a lot of people, um, religious people, who will be angry at what you have already said. You know, they will say, hogwash, we know how life got here, and it was only a few thousand years ago, because the Bible tells us that. Uh, What kind of um, answer do you offer to people like that when you encounter that? Um, My answer is that science... The scientific method is a philosophy of life, just like any other philosophy of life. And it has rules that you apply when you live your life. Okay? You rules on how to collect data, rules on how to how to your thought processes should move in order to arrive at conclusions. Um, I tend to believe in that philosophy and I'm living my life by that philosophy, but there's certainly other philosophies. And all I can tell you is by applying that particular philosophy, which, by the way, has been very successful. Our entire technological civilization is based on um, the, the writings, if you will, if you want to sort of put it in a religious context, of, of the scientific method. But it's still just a philosophy of life. And there are other people that could have different philosophies that are just as valid, I, I presume. I don't believe them, but... They have as right as much right to believe that, I guess, as I have to believe mine. Hmm. Um, 
I'm, I'm rather surprised that you would refer to the process of science uh, that you're talking about as a philosophy uh, rather than, uh, I mean, science is the ability, is repeatability, mm-hmm. the, the ability to demonstrate uh, something again and again and again uh, as a law virtually, is it not? Yes, that's one of the tenets, right? That, that the only things that you can sit that, set down as being true are things that are repeatable over and over and over again. You do the same thing and you get the same result. But that's part of the philosophy, right? Sure. Oh, that, well, that's true in that sense, yes. Right? Yes. And so, and so while I firmly believe in this, it, you know, I mean, after all, there was Descartes, right, who said, I think and therefore I am. For sure. And then the argument was that the only thing he really knows is that he exists. <laughs> right? Uh, correct. Uh, if we are able to repeat, go to the Antarctica. Find more rocks that are arguably from Mars that contain fossilized remains of microbial life. Where do we go from there? In other words, once you have established that, and more rocks, no doubt, will establish it, then what? Um, Are you asking me scientifically what we should do? Lines of investigation, yes. Um, It seems to me that the, the real... One of the real missing pieces of evidence in this whole exercise, if you read their paper, is the inability for them to actually chemically analyze one of these tiny fossils. We have yet, as far as I understand, we do not have the technology to analyze, chemically analyze something that small. And it seems to me that what they, the next, I think from the, the point of view of the people that actually wrote the proposal, and the people, I mean, wrote the, paper and the people that are doing this particular line of research is not only to collect more meteorites, but to develop the technology necessary to analyze those very small samples. Because it seems to me, from what, again, from what I understand, I'm not an expert, that they can do that with the fossils um, the, of, of bacteria that we find on the Earth. Okay, These guys are 100 times smaller, and therefore they can't do it with these guys. And I think hmm. they may be able to make a much more convincing case if they can do that. All right. Uh, doctor, relax. We've got a top-of-the-hour break. We'll come back, uh, talk of a couple of more things, uh, ask about your work a little bit, and then open the lines and let the people ask some questions. Sure. All right, great. Uh, my guest is Dr. Harold Levison, a senior research fellow uh, with the Southwest Research Institute. We're talking about Mars, and we'll talk a little bit about Europa and get to your calls. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996.
Networks presents Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired August 21st, 1996. And Rude Art jumped right into the middle of the Martian story, the uh, meteorite that landed in our, was found in our Antarctic, because I was so dying to know about it. Didn't ask enough about uh, uh, Dr. Levison's uh, work and the organization he works for, Southwest Research Institute, and we'll get to all of that and more about the meteorite Mars and the fact that we all may be Martians. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Coast to Coast AM is happy to announce that our website is now optimized for mobile device users, specifically for the iPhone and Android platforms. Now you'll be able to connect to most of the offerings of the Coast website on your phone in a quick and streamlined fashion. And if you're a Coast Insider, you'll have our great subscriber features right on your phone, including the ability to listen to live programs and stream previous shows. No special app is necessary to enjoy our new mobile site. Simply visit coasttocoastam.com on your iPhone or Android browser. Looking for the truth? You'll find it on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. Let me ask you this. What is going on to necessitate this so quickly? There seems to be a deadline in their brains, and they need to get this done. They know their whole new world order is inches from going up in flames. So they're afraid of the awakening, and they know that their collapse is about to take place because we've been asleep at the switch, and we've let incredibly corrupt interests take control of our society. Now we take you back to the night of August 21st, 1996, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Dr. Levison's principal research interests lie in the area of the dynamics of astronomical objects, so that makes him a great person to ask about how a meteorite got from there to here. He has an A.B. in physics, Franklin and Marshall College, 1981, an M.S. in astronomy, the University of Michigan, 1983, and a Ph.D. in astronomy, the University of Michigan, 1986. His professional chronology is entirely too long to read. He's a member of the American Astronomical Society, Division of Planetary Science, and Division of Dynamic Astronomy, and works for the Southwest Research Institute, and doctor, I want to ask you about that because I should have in the beginning of the program. What is the Southwest Research Institute? Uh, the Southwest Research Institute is centered in San Antonio, Texas. Uh -huh. It's a huge place. It's got about, I think, 2,700 employees, and it's essentially, you could think of it as a think tank. Um, they will do research into just about any field of physical sciences, um, that people are interested in funding. It gets about half its funding from the government and about half its funding from private industry. Most of the work probably goes into the automotive group that's there. I don't know if you remember, at the time of the Gulf War, there was a um, problem with getting sand in the oil. Oh, I remember. Tank. Yes, and indeed. They sent Southwest Research Institute employees to work on that Oh, out there. It's um, automotive, computer science, um, uh, petroleum storage, alternative oils, uh, um, a wide range of different things. There's a space science division, an instrumentation division, 
most of the people in our division are actually engineers, and they build instruments for spacecraft. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of the spacecraft actually study the Earth, but um, some of the spacecraft have been sent to other planets, and we actually have uh, a big instrument on Cassini, which is a spacecraft that's going to go to Saturn. Um, we just got a water to instrument for Rosetta, which is a spacecraft that's going to go to a comet. Um, so it's a very active place. Wow. Uh, I was centered in San Antonio for a couple years while I worked there. They decided to try to open up a branch office in Boulder um, to have a closer relationship with the University of Colorado and the astronomers here, and I took the opportunity to move up here to work with them. Okay, so how do you personally then fit into this? What does your day-to-day -day work uh, generally consist of? My day-to-day -day work sits, consists of sitting in front of a computer terminal and writing computer codes. Remember that the solar system, human beings have only been around for a very short period of time. History, you know, history is thousands of years. But the solar system itself has been around for four and a half billion years. And in order to try to understand how the solar system formed, which is my primary interest, the way we do that is we run experiments on the computer. We actually write computer code that allows us to form planets or follow the evolution of planets over long periods of time. And then we can look at what comes out of the computer code and compare it to um, what we see and try to get an understanding for what the physical conditions were back at um, the time the solar system formed. At least that's one way of trying to figure out how the solar system formed. And that's really my expertise, is following the behavior of objects and the orbits of objects for very, very long periods of time. All right, this may interest you. Uh, it just cleared my fax machine for immediate release, it says, a press release from Dr. Nadine Barlow. Do you know that name? I think I do, yeah. Uh, Department of Physics, University of Central Florida. It reads... Two possible source craters for the Martian meteorite, ALH84001, have now been identified through an extensive search of impact craters on Mars. Hmm. The 1.9 uh, kg, 4.2 pound meteorite, recently identified as showing possible evidence of past Martian life, was formed about 4.5 billion years ago and was blasted off Mars during a meteorite impact about 16 million years ago. Dr. Nadine Barlow, a planetary scientist at the University of Central Florida, identified two likely source craters through a search of a crater catalog she compiled while doing graduate work at the University of Arizona in the mid-'80s. Um, a number of characteristics of the meteorite helped Dr. Barlow narrow the search for possible source craters. So she believes she has identified the actual crater on Mars from which this uh, meteorite came. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, I would have to look at the evidence that you would present, obviously. Mm -hmm. You know, scientists are natural, natural skeptics. But it certainly doesn't surprise me if this turns out to be the case. As you and I were discussing earlier, the surface of Mars is very old. We see all these impact craters all over the place. And this type of impact, like I said, tens of millions of years ago, that's fairly recent in the timescales that we think about when we think about uh, impacts. And, for example, like I said, the, the highlands on Mars um, are, the, are 4 billion years old or 3.5 billion years old. So it certainly doesn't surprise me that such a recent event as the one that probably knocks this meteor off Mars will be – I'm not surprised it would be possible 
to identify that crater. All right. Uh, some of these, no doubt, will be silly questions, but they're interesting. Uh, they co they're coming by fax now. Uh, mm -hmm. Dear Art, please ask the doctor, if Mars does not have enough mass to retain an atmosphere, how did it ever have an atmosphere in the first place? Because the things of which it was made uh, had the materials in it that would form an atmosphere. Right? Comets, for example, have a lot of gases in it. Um, matter of fact, the oceans on Earth probably, I mean, one of the theories is that the oceans on Earth actually came in in the forms of comets hitting the Earth way back in the early beginning when the, the Earth was forming. Um, so what happens is, is that it slowly leaks away. You can imagine, for example, um, a balloon with a small hole in it, right? If you're pumping air in faster than the air can get out, then you'll get a lot of air pressure. That's what happened early on in the history of Mars. Hmm. But then as the impact rate on Mars went down, as it did throughout the entire solar system, um, very shortly after the major planets formed, that leak is continuing. And continuing so that the atmosphere slowly leaks away. Is that process underway on Earth now? Uh, to a lesser extent, but it does happen. The Earth does lose part of its atmosphere. That's unsettling. Well, <laughs> not, not fast enough. I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, okay. Um, here are three questions about the Mars rock uh, from a man in Alhambra uh, that he doesn't think can be answered. Let's try them. How large a mark would be made on the surface of Mars to eject rocks at Martian escape velocity, rocks large enough to survive the upward journey through a Martian atmosphere, space travel for many years, then a fiery re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere, and why do we not see such a huge impact area on barren Mars? Well, I guess we answered that one already. Apparently, we do. Right. Uh, what evidence of scorching from re-entry through Earth's atmosphere would be found on the outer surface of the rocks, and what kind of microbes could survive such a scorching? Well, indeed, that's how they identify these things as meteorites, is that the outer surface has a crust that's been burned. And, matter of fact, one of the interesting facts about this rock is when they found the organic material on it, one of the questions that they asked is whether that could be contamination. And what they found is that the burned surface of the rock didn't have any of these materials on it because it was probably, they were probably destroyed during the entry process into the Earth. Okay, it was okay. only when they got deep inside that oh. they saw the organic material. All right, so the answer is they have been deep inside. In other words, they've sawed this sucker in half or oh, something. Oh, there are, there are pieces of it all over the place. I see. All right, what kind of orbital plane would allow rocks ejected from Mars at a non-polar location to strike Earth near a pole, and what implication does this have as to where on Mars to look for such a mark from the original ejection, namely at the Martian poles. Oh, well, the tilt, the, the solar system, the planets in the solar system pretty much lie in a plane, right? But there's small tilts of a few degrees. But that few degrees, since the planets are so far from the sun, actually are huge linear distances. So that the plane that the Earth sits in and the plane that the Mars sits in are slightly different. Mm -hmm. And the target of the Earth and the target of the Mars, of Mars is so small compared to the thickness of that plane that I don't think you can say anything about where the launch points actually were uh, or anything about the coincidence that it hit the pole. It just happened to be that way. Could this rock, uh, millions of years ago or one like it, have actually seeded life? In other words, 
uh, the rock hits earth, breaks open, the microbes uh, are set free and begin to uh, proliferate and, and multiply and so forth and so on. Is, is that the theory? Well, it's a speculation. It's not a theory. Mm-hmm. Okay? But that's sort of the idea that people have been throwing around. It needs a lot more work and a lot more critical thinking. Um, it's very easy to sit down when something like this is announced and think of a, a large number of what may end up in the long run being crazy ideas, right? Scientists are notorious for that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, the real work is to weed out which of these are sort of nutty ideas and which of them actually uh, can stand up to the mustard. And, and it seems to me that we're, I wouldn't call it a theory, I would call it a, a speculation. Let's say that uh, something as uh, complex as the human being never never occurred, never formed on Mars. Um, what about, again, something in between, something greater than microbial life and lesser than human life? Is that I, possible? I don't, yes, I think it's possible. I don't think we have any evidence one way or the other. Fascinating. Right. I mean, we haven't really, it, again, it, the only place we've visited is Antarctica. We yep. haven't been to where things would be happening. Does all of this... Uh, add great argument uh, to continuing our space program. In fact, uh, for going to Mars, taking human beings to Mars? Um, I don't think it increases... Well, let me take a step back. I think that's a very premature position to take. I think there's a lot more work to be done on the, uh, the Martian meteorites that we have. As I was explaining, trying to do a chemical analysis of the fossils themselves, um, do, I don't know if, if you're aware, but three Mars missions are being launched this year. Yes. And uh, we're going to learn a tremendous amount about Mars. What will they do? Um, the, there's the Martian Global Surveyor, which is an instrument with essentially um, an orbiter, which will study the atmosphere of Mars and uh, take high-resolution photographs of the surface in many wavelengths. Uh, there is a lander that has a little robot that's very small. It's, I guess it's, I've seen people, a model of it. I guess it's a couple feet by a couple feet, which will go around and sort of poke under rocks and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I really think we need to, um, and then there's a Russian spacecraft, which essentially has both aspects of that. I, I, you know, I think our policy really needs to be driven by the science. And I think, although this is, a very fascinating result and maybe one of the most important scientific discoveries of the century, um, you know, if it turns out to be right. The, the, I think it's very much premature for us to start changing our scientific goals uh, in our space program in order to meet, you know, this, this result. All right. Um, Art, an interesting point. If there was higher life forms on Mars, like people or elephants, uh, or what have you, it was destroyed, was it not, when the comet that knocked that rock into orbit uh, hit the surface, similar to the destruction of the dinosaurs, but much worse. Uh, would that be possible? I still think there would be evidence of that on the surface. And let me point out that although the impact that uh, killed off the dinosaurs was catastrophic, to say the least, it did not destroy all life on Earth. It didn't even come close to destroying all life on Earth. 
mm-hmm. the um, it would take an impact much, 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 much larger than something that like the KT boundary impact to to destroy all life on Earth. All right. Um, out on a limb here for a second, there are many people doing work uh, that has looked at the Cydonia region of Mars. They have found what they think are artifacts that are not natural. They've done mathematical studies that seem to show that these objects are not natural. Um, What is your view of this? You know, the face on Mars, the so-called pyramids, and so forth and so on. Um, Have you looked at that? Well, I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm obviously curious about it, and I've read some things about it, and um, although my, my research area, it's not my research area, my feeling about it is that the pyramids, uh, as far as I understand it, can be explained by the wind patterns we see on Mars, and as erosion um, artifacts. The face on Mars is, I think, just a coincidence, um, and I think the story I can tell is that, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you recall um, a little, I guess that was a year and a half, two years ago, uh, Galileo flew by an asteroid called Ida. Yes. And it sent back a picture. And the first picture it sent back looked remarkably like an Easter Island statue. Right? I was, uh, we, everybody that was standing around me when I first saw that picture all agreed it looked remarkably like it. Hmm. But none of the other photographs of it looked anything like it. Right, and I think before you can really, I've seen lot, you know, this this picture of the face of Mars, and it is intriguing, right? But before sure. you really can answer, you know, that 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 there, there's a quote by Carl Sagan, which essentially says that incredible claims require incredible proof. Indeed. And one photograph does not convince me, especially since you see things like this, like I said, the face on Ida, right? Um, until we go back and take more images of that particular feature. And, right, the Mars Global Surveyor will do that. I certainly agree with you, but uh, there are many people who are saying that NASA, for some reason, seems very disinclined, uh, almost um, uh, amazingly disinclined, to want to go back and re-photograph it at all. It's in the plan to re-photograph. I think... NASA really needs to, uh, right, I'm not a representative of NASA in any way, right, so you have to take that into account what I'm going to say. Right. They have a very fine line they need to balance, right, that they, that they have to give the, the, they have to give the impression, which, and it's a true impression, that their interest is the scientific interest. Alright. Alright, and so this idea that there's a face on Mars is viewed with skepticism, to say the least, by the scientific community. And therefore, as a representative of the scientific community, they can't put too much faith in it. Right? They can't make the face on Mars a driving reason why they have to go back to Mars. All right. Well, if you look at Mars and you were to set, and, uh, set a list of, of priorities of scientific interest in terms of what to go look at first, second, third, and fourth, uh, where would Cydonia fit in? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, um, the, the, the driving force really behind the imaging of Mars is, just, uh, is the geology of Mars. And um, I'm not a geologist, so I really can't answer what their priority should be. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Um, but let me assure you, it will be imaged again. It right. will be imaged again. Yeah. Uh, if that image comes back and tends to confirm it with even uh, greater detail uh, or, or begins to suggest uh, with a heavier weight that this object or these objects are not natural, mm-hmm. uh, what, what evolution of thinking would that would that put you through? I, I, that, that's a hard question, and we're coming to a break here, so I'm going to let you think about that okay. during the break. And we'll come right back, and we'll also ask about uh, what Galileo found regarding the watery undersurface of Europa and the possibility of life there as well. Maybe it is common. My guest is Dr. Harold Levison from Boulder, Colorado, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. On Premier Radio Networks, tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. Once again, I am here, and so is Dr. Harold F. Levison. And uh, he's here commenting on the Martian meteorite found uh, that broke in the news here a couple of weeks ago. Boy, what a news story, huh? Streamlink, the audio subscription service of Coast to Coast AM, has a new name. Coast Insider. You'll still get all the same great features for the same low price. The package includes podcasting, which automatically downloads shows for you, and the iPhone app. You'll also get our amazing download library of three full years of shows. That's over a thousand shows for you to collect and enjoy. If you're a fan of Coast, you won't want to be without Coast Insider. Visit coasttocoastam.com to sign up. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. Back now to Dr. Levison. Doctor, are you there? Yes. And uh, I'm sorry, where were we? I had just posed a question to you, I know. Um, you wanted me to speculate how my my thought processes would change That's if right. these um, objects on Mars actually ended up being artificial. That's right. Mm-hmm. And you asked me to contemplate that question. I've yes. been contemplating that question. And I, it's a very difficult question because if that did turn out to be the case, or indeed we found – 
evidence of intelligent life elsewhere, you know, with the SETI programs looking for radio waves, would it would represent such a fundamental change in how we view ourselves that I wouldn't even I couldn't even begin. I, I guess I'm going to whip out on this question yeah. to speculate how my how my thinking would change. And the analogy I came up with while I was waiting is that. Um, I have a young baby girl. She's two years old. It's my first little girl, uh, first baby. And uh, somebody asked me about a month before she was born, well, how do you think it's going to feel to be a father? Hmm. Right? And I could have tried to answer that question, but it wouldn't even have compared to the change that actually occurred. And I really think that's it's on that kind of level. It would be, it would shake my, you know, shake my view of the universe down to, such a fundamental level, I don't know how I would respond. It's an interesting point, and actually it's a good answer. Uh, there was something called the Brookings Report. Are you familiar with it? Um, no, I'm not. All right. Well, basically it was a study done that said uh, if intelligent life were discovered, it would, uh, it would thoroughly upset the general public, but it would particularly upset scientists as a group more than any other. Would you think that would be true? Um, I'm sort of surprised. Why did they say that? I don't know. I guess that a lot of scientific uh, paradigms would be suddenly turned upside down, and uh, careers that have been built on preaching about those paradigms would go up in smoke. Well, but that happens all the time in the scientific field. <laughs> all right. right. I mean, it's very fast. I work in a field that didn't even exist five years ago, and um, I... I'm, the reason why I'm surprised is, now of course, this is a biased view because I'm a scientist, but I would tend to think that scientists are the most agile, um, uh, well, maybe not the most, but a very agile group when it comes to adjusting their thinking to what we actually observe. So I'm sort of surprised about that result. All right. Uh, please ask your guest, Art, what kind of escape velocity it would take for a chunk of Mars, liquid or not, to leave that area. And how much of that velocity would remain upon reentry in the Earth's atmosphere? That would be in your uh, category of uh, expertise. Yes, and um, I must admit, I don't know off the top of my head the escape velocity from the surface of Mars. So I'm going to be going to disappoint your uh, your listener a little bit. As for their second question, the the escape velocity from Mars is small compared to the orbital velocity that are involved as the, or, as the planets orbit the sun. Mm -hmm. So really what would define the impact velocity on the Earth would have something to do with really Mars's orbital velocity and the Earth's orbital velocity, and not actually the velocity in which the rock left the surface of Mars. All right. Uh, he then wants to know how much volume or mass would make it through our uh, atmosphere at those speeds, whatever it would be, uh, escape velocity from Mars and then impact on Earth. In other words, how much uh, mass would likely make it through to crash into Antarctica? Um, the, I, I, you know, I don't really know. It's, the answer to that question is a function of how big the rock originally was. All right? And I really don't know the answer to that for this particular meteorite. Um, it could be that most of it survived. Little things like the um, things that cause uh, meteors are very small. They can be as small as a dust grain or something about the size of your thumbnail, and they don't make it through the atmosphere at all. So it depends on 
really how big the initial object was. Would uh, would an object have, uh, in effect, left Mars as a rock, or would it have left uh, more or less in liquid form? It would have to, this particular object would have had to have left Mars in a solid form. All evidence um, of the, the fossils would have been obliterated if the rock had melted. Mm-hmm. That, you know, but um, like I said, the, the rock shows definite evidence of it being shocked. Okay. Um, um, that is much older than the impact date on the Earth. And so uh, whether that was actually the event that shot it up into um, uh, orbit around the sun or not, I don't know. But clearly the structures that we see in the rock survived that event. So it, it did have to leave as a rock. If it That's left right. in liquid, all, that, all of that uh, evidence would have certainly been destroyed. That's right. All right, good. Uh, now let's skip very quickly before I open the lines. I've been promising to do that. Uh, Europa, uh, I mean, right on the heels of the Mars news, suddenly they release information about new photographs of Europa or photographs of Europa that would seem to indicate it may have a watery interior leading again to speculation that where there is water, there very well may be life. What can you tell us about that? I think that Europa is one of the most interesting objects in the solar system. The idea that it may have a liquid center or a liquid ocean, actually it's rock in the center, so what the structure of Europa would actually be sort of a rock-like um, planet or moon covered with a liquid ocean, covered with a solid... Uh, ice surface. If this indeed, if it really does indeed have a liquid ocean, that would be the structure. So it's not down in the core where the water is. It's sort of in an intermediate level. Um, that uh, that idea actually dates back, I think, to about 1978 or 1979, um, and actually predates uh, Voyager's visit to the Jovian system by a few months. Um, the images that Galileo Kind of images we've been getting 
of uh, Ganymede, for example, which is the one that really flew by, has been spectacular. And I think we we're going to learn a lot about Europa when Galileo actually does the really close flyby. Uh, if if they were, uh, again, coming back to the likelihood of life, if, um, uh, the hypothesis, if we were to discover there is indeed microbial or even uh, greater life under the surface of, uh, of this moon, um, would that then, uh, would a discovery like that on Europa then suggest that life is very likely, or would you again suggest we've been spit trading uh, with Europa I and everything it, else close by? I find it very hard to believe that we've been uh, trading material with Europa. If we didn't find, indeed find, life on Europa, and let me just say, I think it's the most likely place in the solar system to find life. Uh-huh. All right. I, um, the, the arguments for a notion, I think, are very compelling. It's right on the hairy edge. Um, uh, the models show, some models show it could be warm ice, and some models show it would be liquid. And, but if it indeed turns out to be liquid, then I think Europa is the place to really go and look for life. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be tough because um, Europa is covered by a sheet of ice, a crust of ice. How thick, how thick do you think it would be? Um, the estimates I've heard are, are tens of miles. Tens of miles. And it's going to be very hard to probe that. We can't even do that on the Earth. Well, I, ice, though, has uh, another interesting effect, doesn't it? It, uh, um, it, also, it also shields. In other words, um, I, I believe it's possible in the cold climes to build, in essence, a, uh, an igloo. And uh, inside the igloo, it's possible for it to be warmer than it is outside, yes? That's right. That's why we think there may be an ocean on Europa, uh-huh. right? But you need a – if you just built, built an igloo out of ice and you crawl inside of it, right, the temperature inside is going to be the same as the temperature outside. Uh-huh. Not only do you need the ice to act as a blanket, but you also need a heat source. A heat source, yeah. Hot. So, well, that, that was where I was going. Uh, there are a lot of people that speculate there could be a heat source within Europa. Is that is that possible? That's exactly what the argument is, and no one knows how hot that fire is. What is causing um, what is causing what is the main heat source inside of Europa is the tidal effects due to Jupiter. Okay, you, just like the you know the Earth has tides right in right, the ocean right that are several feet. Uh, some places even more, where the, moon, the gravitational tug of the moon lifts the water sort of away from the earth and there's a bulge. Well, everybody's familiar with that with the water. They may be less familiar with that with the land. It turns out there's a land tide, that the, the, the shape of the earth itself, the rock, is deformed by, um, by the moon. It's about nine inches, I think, is the number that comes to mind. All right. And as the earth turns... The, the rocks are moving around because of this tide, and that's actually slowing the Earth down, so the day is getting slightly longer mm-hmm. as time goes on. And what it's also doing, and, and that energy from the rotation of the Earth is being turned into heat in the interior of the Earth. Now, it turns out that's not very important for the Earth, but it turns out to be very important for Europa. Oh, and okay, the, uh, so Europa might have a heat source. It's got a big covering of 
tens of uh, miles of ice. Right. And uh, this giant uh, liquid ocean beneath. Now, is there some reason to believe that if all these conditions are as we believe they might be, that uh, life could have evolved and be there, in fact, now, well beyond the microbial stage? It is indeed possible. And I, I ask that because there has been, I believe, recent res research at very, very, very deep ocean levels here on Earth, places where uh, sunlight uh, virtually never, ever reaches. I mean, it's totally pitch black, probably very much the way it is on Europa. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is indeed life down there. That's right. And it feeds off the volcanic vents, which Correct. is exactly what it would do on Europa if it were there. Fascinating. Arthur C. Clarke, uh, I believe, um, the man who speculated about uh, the Clark Belt and then had it named after him, uh, wrote in a science fiction book, as I'm sure you're well aware, uh, something to the effect of, um, uh, you may go anywhere, you may do anything, but hands off Europa. Do you suppose that he was um, thinking about exactly what we're discussing right now when he wrote that? Absolutely. We met the book 2010, which is the uh, book you're referring to, yes. was written after the 1979 or 8 uh, work suggesting that Europa may have a liquid, a liquid ocean. So he was very much intrigued by that idea, and he wrote the book based on that. Um, as a scientist, uh, if we had an opportunity to go to Europa and begin to find out whether life, in fact, existed there or not. What would be your cautions about doing that? As we, or Even with respect to Mars, as we begin to extend out and look for life elsewhere, should we be uh, so tampering? Well, I don't know what you mean by tampering. Well, NASA and the Soviet Union have taken uh, very extreme measures when it, Viking, for example, they boiled it and they got it very hot. They wanted to make sure that it was sterile when it went to Mars and not to contaminate Mars. And the, as far as I am aware, the, uh, the, the programs by Russia now and uh, the U.S., which are going to be launched at the end of the year, are they're both taking very, very careful precautions about contaminating Mars um, with life, and I think that is a very smart idea. Uh, Europa is a totally different issue. I don't see, although there has been talk within the scientific community of actually sending a spacecraft, a lander, to Europa, um, that, with the current technology, all that really will be able to answer, I think, is whether there is a liquid ocean on Europa or not, right, using... Um, um, you know, uh, seismographs, similar to what we do to study the interior of the Earth. Mm -hmm. I, you know, a couple, tens of tens of miles worth of ice is awful hard to get through. And, uh, and I yeah, don't yes think it is, although, yes, but, but, but let me ask you, um, this uh, tens of miles of ice seems to be crisscrossed with uh, fissures. Uh, yeah. And I've got some of these photographs, these very apparently deep, Fissures. Now, I, I have no way of knowing how deep they really are, uh, but that, I guess, is also evidence, uh, they feel, of what lies beneath. Uh, how deep do you think these fissures might be? Well, they're sort of like um, fissures that we see, let's say, on Hawaiian islands. Have you ever seen 
I was there about a year ago, and there are these linear fissures in the ground with lava streaming up in sort of a wall. Yes. Okay, and that's sort of the current model of what these fissures look like. Now, the lava that's coming up from that comes from way deep inside the Earth, and the fissures aren't very wide. I don't think anybody would suggest that we try to study the, the uh, try to study the uh, center of the Earth by going down through one of these fissures. And I think the same is probably true with Europa. But there's another problem with these things. At least in Hawaii, we know these things are currently active. Right. Right. In Europa, they may that activity may have been extinct for millions of years. We have no way of knowing. And so these fissures may be sealed. Do you think that many of these questions will be answered in your lifetime, my lifetime? Which specific questions? Well, for example, Europa, whether there is uh, life beyond the microbial stage. Might we answer that in our lifetimes, or is that a generation or two or five away? It's, it's hard to extrapolate. I mean, if you would have asked somebody in 1958 whether we were going to go to the moon in the next decade, I think the answer would probably have been, I don't believe that. Right? The, 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 the wonderful and exciting thing about science is it goes in directions very quickly that we can't even imagine. As in the announcement about the meteorite, it's As absolutely true. As in the meteorite, or the stuff that I work on. Like I said, five years ago, what I work on wasn't even known. And uh, I spent my entire life now studying a region of the solar system that no one knew existed five years ago. It's just, it's hard to, it's hard to even guess what will happen in our lifetime. What region do you study? I... I study the re if you go back and look at your textbooks, you'll you'll learn the structure of the solar system is that there are four rocky planets in the inside, and then there's an asteroid belt, which is a rubble pile. Right. And then there are four giant planets. Yes. And then there was Pluto, and that's sort of the the structure of the solar system as we understood it, um, let's say five years ago or so. All right, listen, I, I've got to break it off here. We'll come back, uh, finish this uh, line of thought, and then we will go to the phones. I promise, everybody. Stay right there, Doctor. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Harold Levison is my guest. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996.
listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. We're talking about discoveries on Mars. We're talking about the possibility of life elsewhere. Europa, for example, with an ocean under tens of miles of ice. We're talking with Dr. Harold Levison in Boulder, Colorado. He is a senior research fellow, Department of Space Sciences for Southwest Research Institute. He has an A.B. in Physics, Franklin and Marshall College, 1981, an M.S. in Astronomy, University of Michigan, 83, and a Ph.D. in Astronomy from the University of Michigan, 1986. He is a member of the American Astronomical Society, Division of Planetary Science, and Division of Dynamic Astronomy. He was uh, with the Ames Research Center. He was with the Naval, U.S. Naval Observatory, the Orbital Mechanics Department, and so many more places that I don't have time to go through them all. He's the guy to ask questions about this sort of thing, and I promise I'm about to open the line. So if you want to get a question in, get on the phone. Looking for the truth? You'll find it on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. I think now, as we look back, we can probably say with pretty good certainty that some people in government might have been aware of what was going on, and they turned their cheek the other way just to let it happen. I also believe that some bigger groups got involved with Al-Qaeda to do what they did on that horrible day. This wasn't just a small group of people who came in and did their thing. There was a much bigger picture there. And if you see the events that have unfolded since this tragedy occurred, how we've lost rights, how we used it to go into Afghanistan and Iraq, and how it has really not stopped, because it's going to continue. We're going to have more and more episodes and more and more involvement in other countries. And just mark my word, this planet is going through an incredible change. And thank God we've got you here to talk with us about it. Now we take you back to the night of August 21st, 1996, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Now, I promise we'll go to the phones, and we will in just one second. Uh, Dr. Levison, uh, you were suggesting you're uh, doing a lot of uh, computer modeling work on the outer planets. Uh, it's actually more distant than the outer planets. More distant? Well, we have, what has been discovered in the last few years is a belt of comets, very similar to the asteroid belt, that is, it surrounds the planetary system. Pluto is actually rather than thinking of it as this lone thing sitting out at the end of the solar system, which is the view that um, astronomy has traditionally had, turns out to be a lar the largest member of perhaps the most populous part of the planetary system. Uh -huh. it's, a r it's a ring of debris left over from the formation of the planets, just like the asteroid belt is a, um, a debris field. Um, but this is where a large fraction of the comets um, that we know about and have named have come from. And this region of the solar system was actually suggested about 50 years ago by Kuiper, um, who 
who you've mentioned at the beginning of uh, the show, right? Uh, who was a very famous American. Um, actually, was Dutch, but he was he he spent his professional career in the U.S. Uh, planetary scientist, and he suggests that this ring may have been there 50 years ago, and that idea sort of faded away from favor favor mainly because no one would have a chance to be able to observe this thing. And it was sort of forgotten about and uh, pretty much rediscovered. Um, uh, the idea was rediscovered about 10 or 15 years ago, but the first proof that it was there was actually only gotten in 1992. So here's a whole new region of the solar system, previously, un previously unguessed, that we're currently studying. All right, uh, very good. Let's, I promised uh, we'll go to the phone, so let's do a little bit of that. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Uh, where are you calling from, please? Arlington, Texas. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I'd like to ask your guest if anyone has ever done a computer model based upon the planetary dynamics of the theories proposed by Emanuel Velikovsky concerning the, uh, you know, Venusian comet, Martian being pulled out from an inner orbit and how that might be related to the Martian meteorite thing? Um, the, the answer to that question is that the as we currently understand how dynamics work, that whole thing could not work. Um, Venus is in a very stable orbit, and when we study Venus's orbit, go forward and backward and integrate its orbit for billions of years, it stays exactly where it is. Mm -hmm. um, um, Velikovsky's ideas, uh, I believe, state that this whole event must have happened around 2,000 years ago, if I remember what he thinks correctly. And that clearly could not have happened. Venus really needs to be there in order to keep the Earth stable. The Earth's orbit being stable really depends on Venus being where it is. And so the fact that the Earth is even here indicates that Venus was there since the formation of the planets. And so I think that any really serious modeling of Velikovsky's ideas seem to indicate that they're not right. All right. Uh, back to Europa for just one second. You uh, admitted that it's possible that life um, might exist uh, under the surface of Europa in that ocean at something past the microbial level. Mm -hmm. Is there any reason to say, no, it could not be, when I would suggest to you that uh, something as complex, for example, as uh, Earth's dolphin might exist uh, below the surface? Um, there is no reason to discount that idea. Let's put it that way. I don't think we have evidence one way or another. Mm -hmm. uh, is it is it uh, unreasonable to conjecture that something intelligent might exist below the surface? Well, I think you can you can argue that there is not a technological society on the order of our society. Oh well, that it would be egotistical to presume that something like that would develop necessarily, would it not? Um, Intelligence is not necessarily measured by uh, buildings and concrete. Oh, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. But I'm just saying a society that develops a technology, particularly radio waves and the like, probably, you know, I think that could be ruled out. And I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I don't think anything else can be ruled out yet. Uh, 
is it not possible that intelligent life could uh, certainly uh, develop along an entirely different plane which wouldn't depend on technology for advancement? Or, or would it automatically depend on technological advancement to be measured as, I, as we understand it? I think the answer to that question, um, and I, I'm, I think I'm going to punt like I've punted on several of these That's questions, fine. Um, is, you know, I'm, I'm representing the scientific community in this, uh, on this program, I guess. And um, the response to that is that we only have one sample of what life looks like if you discount this Martian stuff. Right. And so it's hard to extrapolate one example. Right? For example, you can read science fiction stories where it turns out that life on a planet is rare. That life usually happens in molecular clouds. I know there's, you know, or, or in some environment that looks nothing like a planet. And all that, you know, there's nothing to discount any of that. And it's very hard to develop a an idea of what different life forms will look like in general by just studying sure. one example. So right. as a scientist, I guess the answer is that we can't answer that question. You're cautious until you get another model. That's right. All or right. another example. Sure, example. East, right. of, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Where are you calling from, please? Hi, this is Steve from South Dakota. Right. Hi, Steve. Uh, I have a comment and then a question. Sure. Uh, one of the pieces of you know, you know of you know evidence put forward for the idea that the uh, meteorites in question did in fact come from Mars originally is the is that the uh, you know composition of the meteorites matches a distinctive signature of you know of you know gases that were uh, present in the Martian uh, atmosphere and indeed here is a criterion matched by the Sidonian research uh, proposed by Horace Crater, Stanley McDaniel, and you know you know Richard Hoagland. Yes. Um, uh, the uh, geometry of the mound uh, configuration and the face is unquestionably a distinctive signature. And uh, my question is, uh, if uh, why isn't the geometry of the mounds that are you know uh, proposed by Dr. Horace Creeter and the appearance of the face enough of a distinctive signature of possible intelligent origin to raise NASA's you know, uh, priorities for in you know investigating those objects. All right, let me add to that a little bit uh, before you respond, Doctor, uh, with this facts. Uh, Art, respectively, uh, I think it should be pointed out to the Doctor that there are, in fact, two known NASA Viking photographs showing the phase on Mars, frame 07A13035A72, taken from differing perspectives and differing sun angles. I was not aware of that. I've only seen one photograph of the face. No, there are there are apparently there are apparently two. Would that would that change your thinking or? Would I would have to see them and find out um, and see how they differ from one another. Mm -hmm. All right, um, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Hello. Hello. Uh, where are you, sir? Uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. All right. Uh, my name is Jason, and I was concerned. Or actually, I had a question. First of all. Um, can compression of very thick land masses cause heating of a core? Good question. Um, the answer to that is initially that's exactly what happens. But so could Europa have a heat source based on the compression of the thickness of the ice? Um, and but, the but that's very short-lived, right? It only occurs during the formation of the 
satellite. So as far as I understand it, the only sources for heat right now are radioactive decay, which is probably the most important thing in the Earth, for example, and the tidal effects due to Jupiter. The, uh, there's also, uh, in Saturn, for example, in the planet itself, there's a heat source that has to do with differentiation. Originally, for example, when Europa was made, all the rock and the ice was mixed together. But as the rock settled out, that also heated the planet. But again, that's a process that has come to completion. These systems are old enough that a lot of these initial things have probably gone away. Right, but if the surface is flexing because of the gravitational forces from Jupiter, mm -hmm. could it be altering the pressures enough, you know, to the watery the surface and into the core. Oh, well, that's exactly what's going core on. Of Europa I'm sorry, I misunderstood that. your question. That's exactly what's going on. It's the, okay. it's the, uh, the grinding of the rock. And as the, as the, uh, as the shape of the satellite changes as it goes around Jupiter, Jupiter's tide, that's exactly what's heating things up. So then the water could be very warm and the fissures could be a result of escaping gases from the rock source. All right, let's, let's ask uh, uh, about a specific. Imagine this tens of miles of ice below it, uh, the water. What kind of temperature could you speculate, and I know it's speculation, Doctor, uh, what kind of temperature of the water might we imagine? I'm not exactly, su I'm not exactly sure what the limits of the models predict um, for what temperatures there could be. There could be volcanic activity, so it could get actually very hot in some places uh, at the place where the rock meets the water. Um, um, but clearly we're talking about temperatures that are conducive, if it's liquid water, to the, you know, the existence of life. Wow. Um, let me just give you another piece of information. As Galileo went past Ganon uh, recently, it discovered a magnetic field which was certainly not expect, expected. And magnetic fields are usually associated with having liquid rock cores. Right. All right. And I, my, again, my understanding of it was they did not expect Ganymede to have a core that was liquid. And so that these, the cores may actually be warmer than what our models currently predict. What do we even understand about our own core? I have heard recent uh, scientific discussion of the Earth not having a liquid core, but having a solid iron core. Have you heard that? I think it's very hard. When you're talking about temperatures and pressures, as high as we, you think about in the core, it's very hard to make an analog of what is solid and what is liquid. right? And I think that's where the dispute's coming, the dispute in that area's coming in. Um, I, the fact that we have a very strong magnetic field, to me, indicates that stuff must be moving around in the core mm -hmm. and um, in order to produce the magnetic field. And if that's the case, then it's not really a solid the way that you would think as a rock, right, because things aren't moving around in a rock. Right. But the densities are very high, so it's not also like liquid. So it's someplace, someplace in between. I've also heard talk that our core is, uh, the Earth, of course, is rotating, but that the core is rotating at an ever so slightly uh, faster rate. Uh, have you heard that? Yeah, I have. It's a, it's a recently new result, and um, I'm not a geophysicist, so I, again, it's not my expertise. 
But I've, I have heard claims that there's evidence that that is indeed a case. Well, of course, we know, we, yes, we know that our uh, magnetic uh, north does shift. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that might, might account for that shift? Is that reasonable to conclude? Or? Um, I haven't heard anybody make that claim. But it is true that no one really understands the mechanism for that switching. Hmm. And so it could have something to do with it. I don't, again, I, I don't know enough to speculate. All right. Um, well, very good. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levison in Boulder, Colorado. Hello. Yeah, Art. How are you doing? I'm fine. Where are I'm, you? I'm, I'm in Bourbon, Missouri. All right. I'm glad to see that you survived the, uh, the Russia trip. Yes, I did. You didn't, I, I assume you didn't fly over at Chesney, huh? Uh, well, no, to my knowledge, I, I did not know. I came from a different direction. Uh, do you have a question for my guest? Yes, I do. Uh, I want to know about carbonaceous dichondrites. <laughs> they have organic chemicals in them, and they are uh, meteorites or meteors that, that flow around through the system, and I'd like to hear what he has to say about them and what is the difference between this uh, meteor that we found in in the Antarctic and the carbonaceous dichondrites that are commonly occur and have organic chemicals in them. All right. Well, um, the the fact that this this meteorite has organic material in it is indeed not a rare occurrence. Um, meteorites from the asteroid belt, which is where most meteorites are believed to come from, including the ones um, that the caller is asking about, um, um, are, do have a lot of organic material in it. Matter of fact, everywhere we look, we see organic material. It's believed that Pluto has a significant amount of organic material. <laughs> um, comets are very dark, and they, it's believed that that's because their surfaces are coated with sort of a tarry gook. Um, when we look in interstellar space and look at the dust grains between the interstellar and between stars, we see a lot of organic material. The organic material itself is not necessarily a sign of life. Um, what is special about this particular meteorite is that it comes from Mars. And Martian meteorites, and indeed Viking data, show that are, usually do not have organic material associated with it. And the fact that this particular Martian meteorite does is very intriguing. How much of this microbial uh, evidence did they actually find? How much of a quantity? Uh, did they find a great deal of it, or was it very rare within, or very plentiful? Um, the organic material itself? I don't remember the numbers. And um, it, it's on the order of what's found in the, um, the asteroid belt meteorites. It's not a lot of material. It's not that you would pick this thing up and think it's a chunk of coal or something like that. Right. But it, it, it is plentiful enough to measure. The other thing you have to realize is they only measured a very small part of the meteorite. This is a very valuable rock, and they've cut it into lots of small pieces, and these guys only had a fairly small flake, and they only really measured a very small region. And so... Um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that they even have an understanding of how the organics vary as a function of place to place within the rock. But again, and I found this interesting, uh, the Antarctic is a place where when they find rocks, in all likelihood, they are not from Earth, but they are from elsewhere, meteorites or at least from elsewhere, correct? 
Uh, I would not. Uh, I I can't say for certain that they're most likely from elsewhere. I it's just much more likely for them to be from elsewhere. So it's and a good the most common place is the asteroid belt. Just a good place to be searching. Yes. This is all fascinating. All right, Doctor, hold on. We'll be right back. Bottom of the hour coming up. My guest is Dr. Harold F. Levison from Boulder, Colorado. And he's talking about the Mars meteorite. And we're talking about uh, many other things, including Europa, where there may be who knows what lying behind, uh, beneath tens of miles of frozen ice. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. On Premier Radio Networks, tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. Networks presents Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired August 21st, 1996. Yikes, I'm so hung up on this record after all these years. How do you figure? Anyway, good morning, everybody. Now we take you back to the night of August 21st, 1996 on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Back now uh, to Dr. Levison, who has uh, been kind enough to be with us. I know it's getting late for you, Doctor. Uh, probably coming up on 3 o'clock in the morning there. That's right. Um, so we'll try and wrap it up in this half hour if we can. Um, here's a question. Dear Art, ask the doctor if he thinks chlorophyll is on Europa, like in the movie 2010. Also, what does he think of the possibility of life on the moon Titan? That's from Salt Lake. Um, Titan is, I'll answer the second part first. Sure. Titan is an interesting object. It's got a very thick atmosphere, uh, especially for a satellite. And there is some arguments that have been put forward that there are actually small seas of liquid nitrogen 
uh, on the surface. So it may be the only other place in the solar system where an actual liquid exists on the surface. Um, there's been a lot of argument that there may be a lot of organic material there. If I understand what the people who study biology are telling us, is that it's probably just too cold, and that probably all the building blocks are there, but that it's unlikely that we'll find life there. All right, here, here's a really hard one for you. Well, let's get to the chlorophyll business first, uh, I guess, uh, on Europa. There's no evidence for chlorophyll. No evidence, all right. Uh, if we ever get to the point where we can, I'm sure you're familiar with the, uh, the term uh, terraforming. Mm-hmm. Um, w- would it be possible, in your opinion, to take one of these likely places for life and eventually have the technology to make it a habitable, habitable uh, location uh, for human beings. The, you know, there's been a lot of speculation on that, and people have actually been working on that question. Reputable scientists have been working on the question of terraforming Mars. Um, it's, and it seems, although it's not within our technology today, it certainly may be in you know uh, the near future, uh, not meaning our lifetime, but within a few generations what would that. be what would be required you need to you you need to warm mars and you need to uh increase its atmosphere somehow all right and like i said the details have not been worked out on that and the there's a lot of issue actually as to what is actually there there's been speculation that there's a large amount of water stored underneath the surface of mars in um uh, as a permafrost if that's there, it would be a lot easier than if it's not there. We just don't know. And so if you're interested in doing something like that, you really need to do the scientific um, basic work to find out actually what the raw materials, which raw materials are there. Mm-hmm. And I would say NASA's in the process of doing that, slowly and too slowly from a lot of people's point of view. But they are attempting to evaluate whether that's indeed possible or not. Do you subscribe to the warming, uh, the global warming uh, scenario? The, mo- the models that I've seen, and, and uh, again, I'm not an atmospheric scientist, but a good friend of mine actually is, and he works on this particular topic, mm-hmm. are tend to point to the fact that the atmosphere uh, will warm due to the carbon dioxide that we're pumping into the atmosphere. Models show that. There's now, I think, uh, beginning to be evidence that the atmosphere actually really is warming, and there, um, and that's sort of an alarming trend. It is. Uh, yes. I think, um, and I've gotten in, this is more of a policy discussion than a scientific one in many ways. But uh, getting in discussion with friends of mine and uh, who are not scientists, my argument is that we should not be running the experiment because be, by the time the atmosphere is very. It, it's, I don't know if you uh, are familiar with the word chaotic. I am, yes. Okay. Well, the atmosphere, that matter of fact, the study of the atmosphere is where one of the places where chaos was first, um, was first discovered. And it seems to me that the, it, what chaos means is that very small stimuli can have very huge effects mm-hmm. and global effects. And it, from my perspective, it's just a very dangerous experiment to run. 
All right. Well, since we're on the subject of dangerous experiments, I can't resist. There is a project ongoing in Alaska right now called HARP. Are you familiar with that at all? No. HARP is um, a project. Uh, it's an oral heater. They intend to bombard uh, the ionosphere with tremendous amounts of energy to actually heat it. And um, there are a lot of people who are, and I'm one of them, who's fairly concerned about this process. I mean, tremendous amounts of RF that are going to be uh, concentrated on a very small, specific portion of the ionosphere to produce heating. For what purpose? Um, the stated purposes of this are two. Uh, one, to study the effect uh, it will have on communications, mm -hmm. because we use the ionosphere for long-distance communications. And two, uh, strangely, to map underground caverns and caves. Uh, in other words, some sort of uh, a return bounce, a very strong return bounce that would somehow map uh, subterranean uh, uh, caves and so forth. It's very strange. But uh, since you brought up the subject of chaos and small effects, uh, small uh, 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 energies or something having large effects, I thought I would... Uh, run that past you, but if you're not familiar with it, it's going to be very hard for you to comment on Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't comment on that. All right, uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Levson. Where are you calling from, please? Houston, Texas. Yes, sir. How are you? Fine. It's a pleasure. Uh, this may not pertain to Dr. Levinson's uh, field of expertise, but my question is, with the speculation of long-term effects of meteor and meteorites on the planet, um, what what effects might meteors play or meteorites play considering the number that bombard the atmosphere every year on the deterioration of the atmosphere? Well, the answer to that is very simple, I think. Um, it, the answer is probably not a lot, uh, after all. Uh, Even considering the composition of them? Uh, yes. Our First of all, they mainly, composition? they mainly rain out. Okay. okay. But on top of that, the reason why I'm, ans I'm answering that so certainly is, uh, without knowing a lot about the models, is because we have core samples of, of uh, ice sheets which can date back the atmosphere for a very long period of time. And even, and, uh, even more than that, we have deposits on ocean floors that are now above ground because they've been pushed up. And the indication is that the Earth's atmosphere hasn't changed appreciably in that regard over the times we've been able to measure. Okay. So I think there's observational evidence that the reining in of stuff is um, doesn't not have a global effect. Yeah, not a big effect. Matter. All right. Uh, let me turn the question around on you then. Uh, what about, uh, conversely, uh, what would a great deal of space travel... That is to say, uh, objects like the shuttle and so forth, um, are leaving uh, uh, the atmosphere uh, with, with great force, uh, would that possibly have an effect? No, I mean, well, what we consider great force, the Earth doesn't consider great force. And, and none of these things, like the shuttle or rockets going off, really have much of an effect on anything in the atmosphere. All right. Well, I've had a lot of people ask about that, so I thought I'd throw it at you. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Where are you calling from, please? Hello, uh, this is Virgil from Houston. Uh, Houston again. All right. Hi, Virgil. Yeah, well, we Houston people get around, don't we? Yes, you do. Uh, 
couple of questions for the doctor concerning Mars. The uh, I know that the uh, diameter of Mars is about half that of the Earth. Would that therefore mean that the escape velocity would be about half that of the Earth? It's actually um, it's a it's a lot less than that. Um, the, not, the, not exactly half. Huh? No, because it go the escape velocity has to do with essentially the mass. I see. All right, and the mass goes as the volume, not the radius. So, uh, although the Earth, the Mars is about half the Earth, it's almost a tenth of its mass. Uh -huh. So it's much less than that. All right. Oh, and uh, another question uh, concerning the uh, uh, impact uh, on Mars of a uh, meteor. Uh, would the amount of ejected material be equivalent to the mass of the object hitting it, or would that be uh, dependent on the speed of the object? It, it, it depends on the speed of the object, and it also depends a lot on the actual dynamics of the impact. But in general, the amount of stuff leaving is going to be very small compared to the mass of the impactor. Like if the angle was a certain w uh, amount, that turns would out, also affect the... It turns out the angle doesn't have a large effect. In this. Oh, interesting. If you, look at, uh, uh, if you look at craters on the moon, for example, go out with a pair of binoculars and look at craters on the moon, yeah, or get pictures of them, they're all round, yeah. right? Independent yeah. of the angle it came in. Uh -huh. The angle really doesn't play a role. I see. And one more question, Doctor. Uh, uh, maybe out of your particular uh, line of study, but I have an idea from the recent discoveries from the uh, shuttle photographs of storms on the Earth, the sprites that extend way up into the ionosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think it might be possible that ozone is created by lightning storms and therefore replenishes the ozone layer constantly. Right. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it, it has always been thought uh, that storms would not replenish ozone, but as he pointed out, there's recent evidence of these incredible spikes uh, mm -hmm. from storms that extend uh, way into space. Mm -hmm. So is that possible? I, Again, it's so far out of my expertise, I hesitate to even guess uh, to an answer of that. I'm sorry. All right, no, that's fine, and I, I appreciate when it's out of your field that you don't tackle it anyway. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Hello. Good morning, gentlemen. This is John from Los Angeles. Hi, John. Um, I have a interesting hypothetical situation that I thought about that I haven't heard any discussion about in regard to the, to the rock from Mars and the, um, I suppose, the, the plant material that was, that was a, on the, or inside the rock? Well, it was, was it plant material? Uh? No, it was uh, bacteria. Bacteria. Okay, bacteria. Microbacteria. Is it, do you think it might be possible for a meteor to strike Mars and then come and strike the Earth and there would be a splashing effect from the heat generated that that could be um, something that would be both a combination of Mars and Earth that has splashed up into the atmosphere and then or up above the atmosphere and then gone for thousands of years around the Earth and eventually landed uh, and was found. I'm not exactly sure um, exactly what you're asking. It's, it's yeah, in other words, sir, um, there is evidence that, um, sufficient evidence apparently, uh, so that it is not ambiguous. In other words, this did come from Mars, they have determined. There's no question that, that uh, it couldn't be a 
something compiled from the strike generating heat so that they would merge? No, because if it got that hot, all evidence of the fossils and all evidence of the um, the organic material would have been destroyed. That makes sense. Right? So the impact itself, although it was very violent, probably didn't heat the rock very hard, although that is very high, although that is a controversy on all this. And there's some people that are questioning this whole revolt because they believe that the rock at one point was very hot. Yes, I understand that the impacts, wherever they would occur, would generate a tremendous amount of heat. Well, a tremendous amount of energy, Yeah. right? But whether things just break or whether they actually melt is a, an issue I don't think anybody uh, understands. Right. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. Uh, doctor, in the Antarctic, are these rocks, which generally could be um, meteorites, that are found, are they prolific? Are there many, many, many of them in the Antarctic to be found within the ice, or are they rare? Um, I'm, not exactly, I'm not exactly sure, again, of that answer. They certainly have found thousands of objects in these expeditions, which are meteorites. All right? So Fairly prolific, then. So they are not rare. Mm-hmm. Martian, Martian meteorites are a small fraction of those. Right, but there are large number of meteorites from the asteroid belt, in particular, that are found uh, in Antarctica. So Mars meteorites, at least, are fairly rare. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they they number in the few to tens, right? They don't. I'm not exactly sure of the number, but they're certainly not in the thousands. Okay. First time caller line. You're on the air with Dr. Levison. Good evening. Morning, actually. Hello. Hello. Our bell. Yes. Yes, I have a question for uh, uh, your guest there. Yes, sir. Um, there was mention about the uh, the uh, Mars uh, expedition. Uh, my question is: is uh, when when are we going to have that? Uh, does he have a guess, or and and if we do, about how how fast will the spacecraft be traveling, and how how long will you know will the travel be? Before we get the answers, uh, I suspect he has more than a guess. Uh, you know about the the, the coming shots, uh, Doctor. Are you talking about the ones that are being launched? Right. Now, yes, it, it, um, the objects, the the launches. Actually, I can give you the dates. I actually brought a little pamphlet home with me, oh, no which right. are are going to tell tell us the Mars Global Surveyor, which is the orbital orbiter that will be imaging the surface, is uh, as of January 23rd. So this is getting a little out of date already. Was supposed to be launched November 5th. The Mars 96, which is the Russian spacecraft is supposed to be launched on November 16th. Again, these these dates are quite a bit out of date, so I don't know how accurate they are. Right. And the Mars Pathfinder, which is the micro-rover and lander, is supposed to be launched in December. December. And it'll take about a year to get there. I take it that the, these are all fairly close together. Does that represent some sort of uh, opportunistic uh, window? Um, yeah, the launches, there. there's a, something called a least energy orbit which um, indicates when you should launch. That restricts when you can launch uh, in the configuration of the planets. And so they have to come fairly close together or you miss the chance for, I think it's a year and a half. I've got you. All right. Um, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levsing. Good uh, morning. Good morning. Uh, Art, Tim in Denver. Yes, sir. Uh, KL Country, I have a question for Dr. Levinson. Sure. Uh, 
Are you familiar with the telescope or observatory they're uh, putting up on Mount Evans? I heard a little bit about it. Uh -huh. They say that the pictures may rival uh, the Hubble pictures. In certain wavelengths, that's probably true. Uh, it's an infrared telescope, which means it doesn't observe um, the kind of light that we see. It observes uh, light that is more like heat. And uh, so it's specifically set up for uh, observing in the infrared, and in that regard, it may actually get images as good as Hubble. But Hubble is really good at is the very the shorter wavelength, like what we see, or ultraviolet, and that the telescope will not be able to compete with. Uh, do you know when that will be operational? Uh, they're they're building the dome now. I don't know when first light on that telescope is. My guess is within the next six to eight months, but hmm. that's just speculation. Alrighty. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, let's try and squeeze one more in. First time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Hi. This is uh, Rich in Upper One, Anchorage, Alaska. Yes. Hi, Rich. Uh, got a question for the doctor. Sure. Uh, and we've been having some power outages up here in relation to that harp situation. But my question is this. Could Europa be experiencing an ice age as the Earth did? Hmm. Uh, or might the Earth uh, experience an ice age as Europa appears to be now? Well, no, I think that's very unlikely. The, the, there's a fundamental difference between the Earth, the energy sources on the Earth, and the energy sources in Europa. Right? The Earth, at least the surface of the Earth, gets most of its energy from the sun. The Europa is five times further away, which means it gets 25 times less energy, which makes the sun a not a very important source of energy for Europa. So Europa is being heated from the inside out, while the Earth is being heated from the outside in. There's no, at, there's, there's no uh, thick atmosphere on, on Europa. Remember, the Earth has got such a nice, comfortable place to live with regard to temperature because it's got this thick blanket of gas right. that's holding uh, the light in. The, the moon, for example, if you get Doctor, stop for a second. We're at the end of this hour. Now, if you've got another hour to give me, I'll sure hold you. If you want to get to bed, I sure understand. It's up to you. I could go for another hour or whatever you want to do. Oh, never say that to me. All right, uh, you're, you're, stay right where you are then, sure. and we will come back and uh, concentrate again on the phones when we get back. My guest is Dr. Harold Levison, and we are discussing things out beyond. Come back and join us. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. I hear the drums echoing tonight. She hears only whispers of some quiet conversation. She's coming in from many flights.
You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. Dr. Harold Levison is my guest. He is a senior research fellow, Department of Space Sciences, Instrumentation and Space Research Division, with the Southwest Research Institute. We're talking about the Mars meteorite that apparently harbors life. We're talking about Europa and beyond. And we'll get back to the good doctor in just a moment. Streamlink, the audio subscription service of Coast to Coast AM, has a new name. Coast Insider. You'll still get all the same great features for the same low price. The package includes podcasting, which automatically downloads shows for you, and the iPhone app. You'll also get our amazing download library of three full years of shows. That's over a thousand shows for you to collect and enjoy. If you're a fan of Coast, you won't want to be without Coast Insider. Visit coasttocoastam.com to sign up. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. Dr. Levison, on a scale of 1 to 10, how exciting is this uh, meteorite uh, um Signs of life uh, or life within the meteorite. How exciting a scientific discovery is it? Um, it's cautiously a ten. Wow. The reason why I, I think like I think it's one of the most important scientific discoveries, if it's right, um, in the century. I uh, the idea that there's life elsewhere than on the Earth is really um, a spectacular discovery. Now, that's not what this is, but it really is sort of leading in that direction. So I cautiously give it a 10. Um, if in the next uh, few years they recover a lot more meteorites or some more meteorites and also discover uh, fossilized uh, life of varying sorts or even something more exciting like uh, plant life or uh, a small animal fossils or something like that, uh, I take it then the excitement level would go through the roof. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, first time caller line. You're on the air with Dr. Levison. Hi. Yes. Hello, Dr. Levison. Hi. I'm graduating from Texas A&M in the spring with two degrees in physics and meteorology. I'm extremely interested in planetary atmospheres. In mm -hmm. fact, I'm applying to University of Colorado, the astrophysical planetary and atmospheric sciences department. Yes. Yeah, I would like to know your outlook for as far as jobs are concerned, uh, what can a PhD expect to find a job, or does he have to do a lot of postdoctoral work, or um, where do you see it's going? I know it's highly political. And it's been, it's, it's highly political. I, the field is shrinking drastically due to uh, budget cuts uh, on the, by the federal government, and my feel, feeling is that the field will be something like a third smaller in five years. It's not a very good look uh, outlook, and the people it's going to hurt the most are the young people, uh, especially when it comes to um, situations like postdocs or a situation that I'm in. I'm, I'm a, what's called a soft money position, and that is I have to raise my salary from grants, 
which I write. Uh, I've got four or five of them to various federal um, federal agencies, and it's very hard to break into those those um, programs. And as the money tightens up on those programs, the tendency is going to be to fund people who they know will produce, who are the people that are already established, rather than newcomers. I, you know, I think it's great. You should go to graduate school. It's going to be the best few years of your life. I feel that way. And the, you know, it's an investment in just the activity of actually doing science. And uh, you have to look at it that way. It's going to be very tough to get a job at the end. Well, not what you wanted to hear, but the straight stuff. There you go, caller. Thank you. Good luck. Um, Good luck. Doctor, uh, why, I, I mean, I understand that times are tough. Money is tough to come by. Uh, but aren't we really going the wrong way at a time when discoveries are like this are uh, increasing uh, it's very exciting and we're going the wrong way well i certainly think so but um i think a politician would answer you can only pay for certain things and it, society has to decide what is more important to to it and i, I think that you know the astronomy although the the numbers sound large when you look at it in just, you know, in terms of what our salaries are, for example, is actually a fairly small amount mm -hmm. compared to other um, things in the federal budget. And I think that it, this is, again, my personal belief, is that it's short-sighted, that science has a lot of very positive, does a lot of very positive things on many levels in our society. And by, um, by destroying, I'm not destroying too strong a word, but by decreasing the scientific output, I think it has very negative long-term effects on society. Doctor, if, uh, if you had your way and money was no object and you could direct the priorities of the U.S. manned space program uh, and you could say, all right, let's go to the moon or let's go to Mars or let's go to uh, Europa or, you know, we just really were pouring the bucks in and uh, you could set the priorities – what would you want to go look at first? With the MAN program? Yes, sir. Um, the MAN program is not really a scientific endeavor. I mean, there are many reasons to do a MAN program beyond science. And so the best way, I think, of trying to make the most important scientific discoveries is by unmanned missions. Well, again, that's a okay. I guess that is a scientific and a uh, economic uh, judgment. Um, yes, I think, and a technological judgment. Really, we do not have the technology currently to get a man to Mars, but we have the technology of getting um, machines machines to Mars. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, if you try to take a man to Mars, you have to move all the food and water and all the air, and that is a lot of mass to get to Mars that you don't that you could fill up with instruments if you were just sending robots. It's true. So your first uh, target of interest uh, with all the money around that you would need would still be Mars. Um, I'm not sure about that. I think we need to get the answers that the current crops of spacecraft are going to give us. Right? This is a step-by-step -step process. You learn a little and then you, you try to make a judgment 
um, about what the next thing to do. And um, if your if your goal is to find life, for example, then um, or understand the formation of the solar system, you would send spacecraft to different places. Do you do you subscribe to the Big Bang theory? Uh, I that is yeah I think that's accepted by most scientists. I had a lady who called me up not long ago with a, a simple but interesting question. She said, why are the planets uh, basically round? And uh, when you consider the Big Bang, she asked, well, were all of these planets, in essence, thrown out from the Big Bang in a liquid form, much as a drop of liquid w would be thrown out if you were to just toss a glass of water up into the air? Well, those are very, very, very different questions. Okay? The solar system, which is the sun and the planets, formed about 4 billion years ago. The Big Bang is believed to have occurred something like 15 billion years ago. The number is debated by a factor of uh, two, right? It can be you know, half as much or twice as much, depending on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. the, the creation of the universe, what was believed to be created, was just a plasma, very, very hot gas. And that all every, all the stars and the planets formed through evolutionary processes that occurred inside of stars over that 10 billion years in order to set up the situation where the solar system could form. All right. So mm -hmm. the the planets are the sun is believed to be something like third or fourth generation after the uh, the Big Bang. Most of the stuff for which the rocky planets are made of, actually was made inside of large stars early on. Mm -hmm. you know, they, that process uh, continues now, does it not? In other words, the, the Hubble took recent photographs of these incredible gaseous pillars that seem to be birthing stars. Absolutely. It's an ongoing process. Stars are being formed and they're dying all the time. And the big stars, when they die, they blow up. And they spew out all this processed material, and it's that that we're made of. And uh, the 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 stars that are forming now have a slightly different chemical makeup than the solar system has when it formed, because the process has been continuing. It's an ongoing. Uh, you could look at the galaxy as a living um, organism, where this process of birth and death of stars is going on and on. All right, the $64 million question. What was it that existed uh, one second before the Big Bang? It, I, <laughs> the standard answer to that question is okay. that the theories of physics, if we understand it, can't go that far back. They fall apart, if I remember the number correctly. Something like, uh, it's, I, I don't want to, it's a very small number. It's, 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 10 to the minus 43 seconds, I think, is the actual number. That's point and 43 zeros one of a second after the Big Bang. Um, before that time, our physics can't explain what happened. We just don't have the theory yet. That's off into creation country. Well, I mean, we uh, may as, as one As one working theory. Maybe. I'm, I would like to think that as we get to understand physics a little bit better, that um, we will be able to try to explain what happened. You know, there are two modern branches of physics, and they don't necessarily agree with one another, general relativity and Einstein, mm -hmm. and quantum mechanics. And their regimes were each of these 
um, theories are valid and regi regimes where they're not. And the Big Bang, right, right after the Big Bang, is where they overlap so closely that we don't have a theory that unifies those two yet. Right. But I think it's within, I mean, maybe within our lifetime we may have an answer. That would be nice. Uh, wild Card Line, you're on the air with Dr. Levison in Boulder, Colorado. Hi. Yeah, this is Walt Marino. Uh, is, there, is there a particular reason why our solar system lies in a relatively flat plane? Why it couldn't be planets circling in all sorts of planes relative to the sun and relative to each other? Yes, it, it, that's actually fairly well understood. And what happened is that the sun and the planets, but the, most of the mass in the solar system is in the sun, they formed by a collapsing gas cloud that was much, much bigger than the size of the solar system. And that cloud had what's called angular momentum. And it's, imagine what it is. It's, it's sort of a rotation. And as, um, you know, as a dancer or a skater, her, her, their arms are out. They bring their arms in. They spin faster and faster and faster, right? That happened when the solar system formed. As this cloud, which wasn't rotating very fast to begin with, collapsed down to something the size of the solar system, it started rotating very fast. And what happens in that situation it, is that there's so much of this angular momentum, this rotation, that the sun, in order to form, needed to, to spew out. Well, spew out is not exactly the right word. Needed to create this disk around it that had most of that angular momentum because the sun itself could not get all that angular momentum in it. And it, the planets formed from that disk. So there's really very good understanding of the physics that formed the disk from which the planets formed. So theoretically, it could not be in any other way. That's right. Great um, show, Art. Okay, thank you very much for the call. Coherent answer. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, there's also a lot of recent evidence uh, finally confirming the fact that uh, planets are common things uh, about sun, about yes. suns, rather than rather than uncommon. Is that so? That seems to be the case. Yes. There's about, I think the number is now eight suspected planets around other stars. And that's just uh, on an initial. Look, see. So the, the odds are then that planets are very common things. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Adding to the probability that life, uh, if it evolves commonly, is all over the place. If it evolves commonly. So uh, where in the world are the radio signals and the I love Lucy's from elsewhere? Well, it's a good question. Um, maybe it doesn't form commonly. The or maybe intelligent, very sophisticated societies don't. Uh, it turns out that my ideas on this subject actually have been changing significantly over the last uh, few years. I, you know, I grew up during the era of Star Trek, right? The sure. First, the first Star Trek. The, the real Star Trek. The real Star Trek. Yeah, that's right, yes. And, you know, that whole idea that you, you enter a solar system and you're going to find a planet with life is sort of my mindset. When I got into astronomy, you know, it really influenced my thinking a lot. And also the work of Carl Sagan and Frank Drake sort of suggested that that may be the case, that there may be a lot of life. But it turns out there's been some recent work that has suggested that life, at least the complex civilization, may not be as common as we think. For example, there's work that recently been done on Mars 
which shows that it's obliquity. That's the tilt of its axis with respect to the orbital plane. Right? The, the Earth right now is at 23 degrees, and Mars is very close to that. But according to recent models, the, the, that tilt of, of Mars's orbit turns out to be chaotic, just like the chaos in the, or, in the atmosphere, and swings wildly all over the place. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, my friends who do atmospheric modeling of the Earth tell me that if that were to happen to Earth, the Earth, that we would be in a perpetual ice age. And we would not have, human beings wouldn't be trotting about right now. That's right. So you have to ask, well, why doesn't it happen to the Earth? And the reason it doesn't happen to the Earth is because we have a large moon, right? And the moon stabilizes the obliquity of the Earth. Mm-hmm. That's what these models have shown. Well, large moons are rare, right? Of all the major planets, if you ignore Pluto for a moment, the Earth has the largest moon compared to its own, own mass of any other planet in the solar system. So we have to consider at least the possibility that we are alone. Well, not alone, but that it's a lot rarer than you would think. That You may find a lot of places where there are microbes or low-level life. Well, that's still pretty lonely. Yep, I think so. (laughs) And again, remember this whole idea, we talked about it a little earlier, of trying to get an idea of what is... The norm, by studying one example, is sure. very dangerous. Sure. Um, exactly. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Good morning. Good morning. This is Carl from Carl, uh, from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Yes, sir. Uh, my question is, is about the impact that happened on the Earth just not too long ago in uh, the Siberian uh, forest in Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, what have we learned about it and what, that, what it might have been? There was, a, there was just a meeting on that. I didn't go to it. About uh, about a month ago, actually. Um, I think the current belief uh, and scientific thinking on that is what, it was a comet that hit the atmosphere, and it was so it was a small enough comet that it couldn't penetrate the atmosphere. So as it was shrieking through the, the Earth's atmosphere, it blew up. And so the, the actual explosion, which occurred above the atmosphere, was very violent, knocked down all those trees, but yet did not leave a crater. Hmm. So because uh, so, uh, I was reading that they could not find any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of debris or whatsoever that a meteorite might have hit it or an asteroid of some sort. Well, yeah. I, he just answered that. If it yeah. blew up uh, before it hit the Earth, then it would have about that effect. Yeah. No thank. Well, thank you very much, and uh, Art, it's great to finally get through to you. I'm glad you made it, sir. Thank you very much for the call. And let's see, one more before the bottom of the hour, maybe. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Hi. Yeah, this is Steve in Portland. Hi, Steve. I was just wondering, um, when the comet Hayakataki passed by Earth, they noted that it was emanating X-rays. That's right. And if Dr. Levison had any information on the source of these X-rays or... Do all comets do this? Or right. um, The answer to your question is that now that we're looking in detail, other comets show X-rays. Oh, they do? Yes, and there's been a couple measured. And uh, no one has any idea why. Huh. So there, there are speculations floating around, but no one's been able to understand why these things exist. You work in a very frustrating field in many ways, don't you? In other words... 
um, we, we have so many things that we are now beginning to discover for which there is simply no answer. But there will be. That's my job. Right? I find it very exciting. Oh, of course. Right? It's the chase that's interesting. <laughs> right? Not, I mean, the answers are interesting, but it's actually the process and the challenge of figuring these things out, which is what I love and why I do this. So astronomy, in other words, uh, is a lot like women. <laughs> you could say that. Uh, doctor, thank you, and hold on a moment. We'll be right back to you. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. Somewhere in time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from August 21st, 1996. Well, if this kind of stuff doesn't fascinate you, you better check yourself for a pulse. Dr. Harold F. Levison is my guest from Boulder, Colorado, and uh, he's staying up really late. <laughs> we'll get back to him in just a moment. Now we take you back to the night of August 21st, 1996, on Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Here is a fax, uh, doctor, from Long Beach, California. Al, is it conceivable, doctor, that at one time... Mars may have had a life-supporting atmosphere, which was, in effect, stolen or sucked away by a large comet passing by at a great speed. If yes, could this happen to the Earth? That is, in effect, our atmosphere being sucked away or burned up by a large uh, celestial body passing near Earth. Um, I know of no such mechanism that would do that. It is true that impacts uh, can can blow off some atmosphere, and that the erosion of Mars's atmosphere may have been somewhat affected by things hitting Mars and blowing the atmosphere off. Mm -hmm. um, but I know of no way for a comet passing by to suck an atmosphere off the planet. Okay, good. So a near miss wouldn't do it. No. All right. Uh, first time caller line. You're on the air with Dr. Levison. Where are you calling from, please? Uh, St. Petersburg. Florida. 
Yes, St. okay. Petersburg, Florida, not Russia. I, I understand. Uh-huh. I uh, have, you pushed a button a while ago when you mentioned a creator. I noticed that, that the, they haven't been mentioned during the whole program. It's been very interesting. But I'm wondering if uh, the doctor is familiar with Sir Fred Hoyle yes. in England, mm-hmm. the astronomer. Uh, you know, he has studied the laws of probabilities. And the, I think the last statistic I read was the probability of any form of, well, a protein molecule, as a matter of fact. This is just a molecule arising by chance is 10 to the power of 249, which is a tremendous number. And uh, if you negate creation, a, a creator altogether, then I don't see how you can have any answers to anything. Well, I'm surprised we didn't get this one a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, so am I, actually. All right, Doctor, uh, have at it. Um, well, I'm going to go back to uh, an argument I made a little while ago about the fact that uh, science is a, a philosophy of life. And, um, and it doesn't preclude religion. I know some very religious um, uh, scientists, and I know some scientists who are not religious. And um, I don't, so I don't think the one really impinges on the other uh, very strongly. I know arguments in both directions. To answer her question about uh, Fred Hoyle's statistics on the formation of molecules, I'm not personally familiar with his work uh, in that regard. I do know that experiments as far back as the 60s and 70s show that it's very easy to get organic material out of inorganic material by um, by putting in some energy source. There's, there was work by uh, Stanley Miller, I think, um, I think in the 50s or 60s, where he took ammonia and methane and common gases that are found in, in the, the atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn and put sparks through it to simulate... Um, lightning. Lightning. And he ended up with simple proteins and and uh, amino acids and the basic building blocks of life. I don't think that it's it's hard to get uh, the basic chemicals from which life formed. All right. Um, wild card line. You're on the air with Dr. Levison. Hello. Yes. Uh, I wanted to mention to the doctor that uh, I found a really interesting website at uh, uh, Penn State University uh, by a physicist named uh, Jerry Smith. He had uh, several designs for an antimatter rocket uh, to Mars that uh, would launch in 2005, take 45 days to get there, and have 30 days on the surface and take 45 days to get back. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, where, where are you calling from, sir? Uh, I am, I'm Tony. I'm calling from Seattle. Seattle. The question I have is uh, uh, why do they think these uh, uh, small uh, creatures that are 100 times smaller than microbes on Earth Why do they? Uh, why do they think they're? First of all, why do they think this comet or, or this asteroid is from Mars? And uh, I, I've heard they uh, meteorite and why this meteorite uh, uh, is from Mars. Uh, I've heard they've uh, uh, got got it down to two specific uh, sites from Mars. Also, it's, it's it's there's only a couple of places on Mars that it could have possibly come from. That's what I read about an hour ago. That's right. Um, well, uh, again, I think this was answered earlier. 
but doctor, uh, it's fairly unambig unambiguous, correct? In other words, uh, that's my opinion. That there there are chemical signatures in the rocks which make it unique to Mars, and uh, so I don't think there's much of a chance that it, it came from anywhere else. All right, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Doctor Levison. Hi. Well, hello, Art. Hello, where are you? I'm out in Milwaukee here. This is Scott. Hi, Scott. I was just going to ask, uh, ask the doctor if, uh, if, he, uh, if he himself actually had a chance to examine any pieces of the rock. I'm not a meteoriticist, so I have seen and I've held Martian meteorites um, because, uh, um, at, at meetings, but I have not seen this particular Martian meteorite, and I have not done any work on it now. Okay. And Art, you do have a picture of it up on your, up on your webpage, don't you? I do. Okay, I'll have to. I'll have to get well, no, that was a question. I, I have, have you seen it? Have Have you seen it? I have not seen it yet. I've seen pictures just flicking through the channels on the news and stuff, uh, but I haven't had a real chance to, you know. All right, let me do this. If somebody will send me a photograph of it, be be assured I'll get it up there. Oh, you, okay. Yeah, All right, that would be great. And, and they uh, they will if I make the request. If somebody has it, they'll send it to me. Uh, thank you very much, and I'll look forward to getting that photograph. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Hi. Hi. hi good morning, Mr. Bell and uh, Mr. Levi Dr. Levison. Where are uh, you, sir? I'm, I'm calling from Morgan Hill, California. Okay. And uh, I understand that our uh, artificial human intelligence, uh, you know, computerized, hasn't really evolved that far. And I also understand that the uh, Hubble telescope was repaired by astronauts, and so is the lunar uh, uh, rover and uh, numerous satellites, and, and that a lot of the experiments conducted on board Skylab uh, could not uh, feasibly be achieved at this uh, level of technology we have through uh, robotics exclusively. And there was a lot of uh, sort of impromptu uh, resourceful inventing, you know, to not underestimate the, the human mind's capability. I, I feel it would be to our interest if we could have a, a, a man-Mars uh, mission for this particular purpose. Also, one other thing I wanted to add is uh, somewhere on the polar regions of Mars, if you could uh, set down a uh, uh, soft landing, uh, sort of like a nuclear furnace that could melt a shaft down to the uh, uh, hard-packed ground underneath, uh, no tailings would remain. It would all gasify the CO2. You'd end up with it setting on the ground, forming a huge uh, uh, cavern, uh, a nice uh, archaeological excavation site, because if they do find any high-tech there from a previous civilization, that's where you find it, where time and space sort of come to a, a, a freeze. As your er er earlier remarks uh, indicated, uh, over a million or so years, even a Coca-Cola bottle would uh, disintegrate, but not under that ice pack. All right. Um, he first argued for manned spaceflight. Mm -hmm. And you seem to argue uh, the other way. It's just a matter of expense. I, I agree. You know, I use the Hubble Space Telescope, and um, the, we've done a remarkable job fixing it. It works. It is a, an amazing instrument. We detected things uh, with that telescope that were, are about as bright as a 100-watt light bulb seen 20 times further away than the moon. Wow. It is an amazing piece of equipment. The... However, the cost of getting a man to the to space telescope was less than building another space telescope. And that's probably not true for Mars. And so you have to look at the economics of it. And I 
And uh, the other issue, of course, is the technology does not yet exist to get people to Mars, but yet we can certainly send, space, send spacecraft there. The thing that people have to be more aware, and I think it's sort of a problem in the PR machine of NASA, is that exploration of space is a risky business. And we're, things like the Mars Explorer, um, is, are, we're going to lose spacecraft every once in a while. Mm-hmm. It's a very risky thing to do. And if you're willing to take that risk, then I think robotics are the way to do it. It's also a lot safer. No one's going to die sending a robot to Mars. That's true. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Art. Where are you, sir? Levison. I'm in Salt Lake. Salt Lake, all right. Um, the salt flats out here, would that be a good place to look for uh, meteors? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, the salt flats of uh, uh, near Salt Lake City, uh, uh, Doctor, would it be an equally good location to look for... Um, uh, errant uh, rocks that might be meteorites? I would have to think about that. One advantage of looking in Antarctica is not only do you have these ice sheets, but the runoff from large areas uh, as ice moves around and, and it melts a little bit mm-hmm. down there tends to concentrate all the rocks in one place. So there's a much higher density than just the average density that you would expect over the Earth. I see. And uh, Which I should have mentioned earlier. And I so it's a, a sort of a funneling effect. That's right. That's exactly right. And I'm not sure that would be true with Salt Lake, but it's an interesting idea. I'd have to think about it a little bit more. All right. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Where are you calling from, please? Uh, I'm Dan from Gardena. Yes, sir. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, good morning. I have uh, two questions. Uh, first, Dr. Uh, really interesting show. And... Uh, I'd like to know that would the polar regions of Mars, would that be a good place to check for uh, some kind of life that might be a little bit more uh, upper in the uh, stages of evolution? Well, I would, think, I would think that the best place would be to look is actually dig down and try to get to the permafrost uh, lower down in Mars. The, the, the polar regions of Mars are very volatile in the summertime, a large fraction of, the, of them be um, sublime, and they're these large. That's what causes the dust storms on Mars, is that the uh, carbon dioxide, uh, which is a major component of the polar caps of Mars, actually melt away, turn into atmosphere, and then blow to the other side and condense out. Uh-huh. And so it's a very volatile place. I, I would think that perhaps the best place to look would be to dig, dig a big hole and mm-hmm. see what you see far underneath the surface. What about uh, that giant, uh, what is it, like a giant hole there on Mars? Well, there's a big runoff basin, which is clearly caused by water. And, yeah. and that would be, if I were going to design an experiment to look for life on Mars, I would go into that runoff basin and I would dig a hole. Mm-hmm. One of the problems with finding life near the surface of Mars is that the UV radiation from the sun uh, is very strong there, and it destroys organic material. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't find organic material on the surface. That's why Viking didn't find organic material. Okay. And can I ask you another question? Sure. Uh, you believe in the Big Bang? Yeah, he already said so. Yes. yes. Yeah. The answer is uh, yes. Okay. Uh, I was wondering, uh, because a lot of scientists think that, that during the Big Bang, that time and space didn't exist. But if that was the case, then what contained this mass to produce the Big Bang? Well, um, that's a complicated question. I'm not a cosmologist, 
and um, and that's not exactly a, a correct thing, right? That that um, time during the Big Bang, time and space didn't exist. It's before the Big Bang that it would not have existed. That's right. Possibly. And, and the the typical answer that I hear cosmologists give to that question is that there was no big before. That's and that's hard to contemplate. It is. But infinity is hard to contemplate either. It certainly is. And so it's that's usually the the way people describe it. And the way it's normally described is imagine a sphere like the Earth, and you go north on the Earth, and you hit the North Pole. Mm-hmm. You can't go any further north, right? Right. Okay. And that's what they say. Now imagine time being one of the dimensions of the Earth. You get to the, the center, which is, let's say, the North Pole. There is no way you can't go in that direction anymore. That's sort of the analogy that I've been told. Not bad, but it's still hard to it's very hard to digest. You know. uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Levison. Hello. Uh, is this our fellow show? It is, yes. Where are you? Uh, I'm from Fresno. My name is Jim. Okay, Jim. Uh, about a year ago, uh, I think it was NASA revealed that they found some pyramids that were on Mars. And I have a rock here called Multivite. It was supposed to be a meteor that was uh, <clears throat> uh, came here millions of years ago. Is that is that a piece of the uh, Mars that uh, meteorite from Mars that broke off? Well, there are quite a few uh, meteors from Mars around, and. Uh, like I said, the one that they're talking about in all the press releases with the life is a very special one. It's a, it's a particular rock that is very different from the other rocks that we think we found from Mars. And if you could have a Martian meteorite. I, I don't know. But what is the new, t- what, Doctor, what is the new technology that allowed them, after being in possession of this rock for so long, to suddenly come out and say what they have said with regard to it? It's the it's there's a lot of things and again you're asking my expertise is not in this area mm-hmm. um, part of it is there's been a lot of advance in the last few years in the study of microfossils on the earth so previous to this time we really didn't have a good feel for what microfossils look like to even compare to the Martian meteor ah. uh, you know there's technology being able to do chemicals chemical analyses of smaller bits and and that kind of thing. So there's there's sort of been a lot of on, a lot of advances on a lot of fronts that allow them to be able to do this. All right. A gentleman earlier mentioned antimatter. There is matter. Is there antimatter? Yes. Uh would that be uh something that eventually you would imagine could be harnessed as a source of power or is it we I, I, I recall that when we uh detonated the first atomic bomb, uh, there were a lot of scientists who thought it might set off a chain reaction in the air and that we might burn up our own atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, are there similar worries when we get to experimenting with matter and antimatter? Well, at some level, we are beginning to uh, experiment with antimatter. Antimatter, I mean, it's certainly not known whether antimatter exists in nature uh, um, as something like a rock of antimatter. Yes. Um, the theory, before before the development of a new, the Big Bang has gone through many revisions in its history, and 
before the latest one, which is called the inflationary universe, um, many people thought that there may be as much antimatter as matter in the universe, and there may be stars and galaxies made out of antimatter. The current thinking on that is if that this new inflationary model of the universe is right, that's probably not true. Hmm. Um, it's possible to make antimatter in in these big um, particle physics accelerators. And indeed, no one has yet been able to make an atom, let's say a hydrogen atom of antimatter, but they've been able to get close. And it's my understanding, again, this is not my expertise, that we may have one atom within the next few years of antimatter. Hmm. Okay? won't last very long, but we'll be able to create it. So we are a long way away from being able to create a large amount of antimatter, large enough to, let's say, pilot a spacecraft. Uh, um, but when, when, when we do, if we do eventually get it, it would be uh, quite a power to harness. That's right. A lot of energy packed in a very little amount of mass, which is exactly what you want to do for, for spacecraft. After all, to get something into orbit, a little, let's say, you know, something that weighs a few pounds, most of the energy goes into transporting half the fuel half the way. Sure. And so if you could find a more efficient way to pack the fuel so that the amount of energy you get out per gram, let's say, is a lot higher, then you're much more efficient. So I can see, you know, I mean, in a sort of a very tenuous way that we'll be able to make use of that. There's still a lot of you know, huge amount of technical questions, and we're nowhere near being able to be able to do that. Even so, uh, best case, uh, the speed of light uh, more or less keeps us near home, doesn't it? If our current understanding of physics is right. <laughs> That's a good place, I guess, to leave it hanging, if. Uh, I guess there is a possibility it may turn out not to be. It, you never know, right? A hundred years ago, a famous... A physicist said, all we have to do is explain two small problems in physics, and all physics would be solved. And those two small problems have led us into the modern age of physics. And so you never know when a whole new area of physics is going to open up because of a small discovery something. Like, like a meteorite, something like that. Doctor, it has been a, a great pleasure and honor to have you on the program. Thank you very much. I've had a great time. And uh, get yourself some sleep. I will. Dr. Levinson, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell. Good night, America. Good night.